Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Tamil Major, and welcome to episode 48. We're nearly at our half century. It suddenly starts to move very, very quickly when you're doing three a week. And uh, if you haven't noticed, obviously a lot more uh, content coming out from me. Uh, I think I've just realized that uh, the only way to crack this job, like so many other jobs, is you've just got to keep that slow grind of work going. Um, it's a very nice idea, like one day I'd like to do you know X, Y, and Z, whatever that is. And you forget, of course, that before X, Y, and Z is the entire rest of the alphabet, <laughs> which um, you've got to put your work in, you've got to grind, you've got to do all the other steps before you get there. And in podcast land, obviously that means putting out podcasts. And uh, I've now settled into a schedule which seems to, to work for me. We're doing three a week, which is good. Uh, hopefully some decent variety. We've done a little bit of a bio on Dr. John Ray. We did the D is for damage. We had C is for cooking before that. Uh, we had the uh, tangents, uh, well, questions and tangents, but probably more tangents as always, your questions and uh, my answers to them. Um, this week, we're going to be uh, looking at the man overboard. It came up in D is for damage. And immediately as soon as I recognized that I hadn't discussed this before, I thought, you know what, this is a piece of knowledge, which I can translate uh, my experiences and my knowledge and the things that I've put together over 25 years at sea, all of the wonderful uh, mentors I've had and the incredible professionals I've had the great luck to work with. Um, I can decant their information and what they know into a one hour uh, information blast for you guys, which could make the difference in a, a man overboard situation. It's such an easy one to translate, even though we're doing it via this medium, we're not on a boat, I'm not doing it uh, hands on with you. I've been doing this talk now for probably well, 10 years on boats, and I'm pretty confident that I can, uh, I can express what I need to express, even though we're going to do it in this audio fashion. So that's Man Overboard. That's coming as the main part of this. But before we go into that, I'm going to just uh, cover a few bits now. We've got some questions. We've got our draw for the Patreon uh, supporters who have been uh, waiting with bated breath for a couple of days now to see who it is that's won the fantastic uh, prizes which we set up on that. And, uh, and a few thanks and things I'd like to put in first. So first off, the question. The question this week comes from uh, Colm McCormack. He's a new Patreon supporter. Thanks very much, Colm, for, for junk, jumping in and, uh, and supporting what's going on. And he's got a lovely uh, question. He's, he's calling me to task on a few uh, things here. And he says this. Hi, love your podcast. Thanks very much, Colm. I'm really learning a lot listening to it. Thanks. In this video, he's talking about one of the videos on Patreon, you mentioned that you have two ballast tanks forward in the bow so you can punch through the waves going upwind. But in your A is for anchoring podcast, you said that we should try and keep weight off the bow, piles of anchor chain, for example, because it could impede our progress through the waves. Aha. Is this because you with the Open 60 will be carrying more speed to help you punch through, whereas we in our tiny sailing boats won't have this same momentum? Or is there some other reason why sometimes it's a good idea and sometimes not to have weight in the bow? That is a very good question. Now, I did write to Colm already, but I thought, you know what, let's open that out a little bit because if there's inconsistencies in what I'm saying, um, I need to understand where I'm going wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, why not uh, ask questions and, and find out what's going on? If, if I'm right, then I'm right and I should be able to explain it. And if I'm uh, talking crap, then let's find out now. So, the deal with weight in the bows. Um, anchor lockers are traditionally very, very close to the bow of the boat. Obviously, they're underneath the capstan or they're under the naval pipe if you don't have a capstan, but they're going to be 
right at the front. And chain is very heavy. You know, if you've got hundreds of feet of chain on board, you've got hundreds of pounds of weight in the front of the boat. If you've got a bigger boat, then you can be into thousands of pounds of weight in the bow of the boat. Now, the boat obviously is um, a machine which is in a state of motion at all times and it's moving in all sorts of directions. Yes, it's going forward through the water, but it's also yawing and rolling and pitching and heaving and surging. And we have all these different uh, uh, directions of motion which are available. One of the ones which we uh, have to deal with on a boat is the fact that they will pitch. They have primarily a lot, most boats, most boat designs have a lot of buoyancy in the center and then reduce buoyancy at the ends because the boat is tapered forward and tapered aft and has less freeboard and less hull buoyancy in the bow obviously because it's pointy and we want it to cut through the waves and then a lot of boats um, certainly of a more traditional sort have a somewhat tapered stern and a lot of that is to do with the fact that when you're going upwind the waves come uh, approach the boat they go under that curved bow section they get pressed underneath the waist as that widened part of the boat is kind of zooming along through the water but then that pressure is released by the fact that the heeled over boat tapers so this the width of the boat reduces, the boat's at you know 30 degrees as it beats up wind, that wave passing under the bulge on the side of the boat, then that pressure is released as the wave is able to get into the open ground or the open air rather between the surface of the water and the sides of that tapering stern. So pressure release at the sides is very, very important. The boat is designed to give you the most sea kindly motion, unless it's some kind of a high performance vessel. But that less lack of buoyancy in the bows and the stern can mean that the uh, boat is uh, want to pitch quite a lot if we give it any, um, any any opportunity to. So the boat, when it starts to pitch, can then start to lose a lot of energy as it's uh, trying to make its way upwind. And if you have uh, experience of classic boats, we call this pugwashing. So the, the old animation, I think it was in the UK, Captain Pugwash, um, that's what it's about. The boat is pugwashing, it's just dipping its bow into the trough, pitching heavily down at the bow and then as the next wave comes the stern goes down the uh, the surface of the, the wave and the bow pitches up into the air and then slams back down over the the coming wave so pug washing is already an aspect of a vessel which is in motion in the way ours are with very little buoyancy in the bows if you have a lot of weight in the bows the problem gets a lot worse if you've got weight in the bow weight in the stern that inertia as the bow comes up and goes down you're adding to the amount of weight and it will dig deeper into the waves it will pitch higher in so you need to keep the weight out of the ends of the boats so that you don't end up pitching too much now the open 60. the open 60 has what's called punching tanks which are forward of the mast the Open 60 is designed primarily for Vendee Globe, of which 60 odd percent of the winds will be coming from behind the beam. But there are times when, of course, the wind is coming forward of the beam and then this boat needs to go uphill. Now, it is not designed really very much for going upwind. My boat is a very unique kind of unicorn Open 60 in that it was optimized for going upwind. But you can see by the fact that it has a completely square stern that it is not in any way um, made to be sea kindly. Uh, the issue is that um, those waves, once they get underneath the side of the boat as it's heeled over, there's no tapering of the boat at the back. So that pressure from the waves is not released, which means that as the boat goes over a wave, 
the pressure will stay underneath the stern quarter of the boat, levering the bow down into a wave. For the Open 60, the problem is magnified by the fact that 30 foot of the front of the boat has nothing in it. When I'm sailing and I've got, um, uh, and I'm full, like fully wicked up, got all the pressure on that I can put, I'm gonna have my sails on deck. Remember, it's not an IRC race, so we can stack on deck. Um, and I'm, I'm a record attempt. I'm not covered by any kind of um, rules or, or, or official kind of guidelines for things. So my sails, when I'm beating, will probably be on the side deck and will be in the kind of positions that would be replicated by a crew. Or if I'm reaching, they'll be at the back of the boat providing uh, weight on the back corner to, to pop the bow out and, uh, and go faster and surf quicker. So my sails are not in the bow of the boat. If the boat didn't have punching tanks, that means that the forward 30 foot of the boat is very, very light and all the weight's at the back of the boat. What that would mean is that the bow will get slammed into the wave by the fact there's no pressure release at the back, there's no tapering of the stern, so the shape will lever the bow down into the wave, and then as it comes up the wave, there's no weight in it whatsoever, so the wind would then be fully exposing, exposed on the side of the boat as we're beating to windward. The only grip that the boat has in the water, the only lateral resistance is provided by the keel and the dagger boards, which are at the middle of the boat, and so what would happen is that the bow of the boat would be pushed off down to leeward and that means that every time the bow rears out of the water I would lose a couple of feet a couple of meters whatever it is on my attempt to beat to windward so what we do is we put weight in tanks which are about if the bow is say 30 foot long from the mast uh, about 10 foot forward is the center of effort for those tanks the center of mass for those tanks and that means there's just enough weight to keep the boat kind of or the bow of the boat planted into the wave so it doesn't rear up so much so that the um, the bow is not blown off downwind so um, punching tanks and some weight forward of the mast is useful in a boat which otherwise would be very prone to sticking its bow high up and, and losing uh, and well cr increasing leeway but if you're in a normal boat with a normal weight distribution you're trying to keep weight out of the very very front of the bow because you're trying to avoid too much weight in the bows creating too much inertia and creating too much pitching which is otherwise known as pug washing and we retard the boat's ability to go forward because your energy would be lost in up and down motion um, as opposed to uh, going forward through the wave so you will see on some more advanced um, anchoring systems that the uh, run from the navel pipe doesn't go straight down into an anchor locker but actually sets off at maybe like a 45 degree angle and deposits the chain somewhere near the mast if you've got like a 30 foot boat you can only have like a, a 10 foot run of pipe that then comes from the navel pipe down between the double berth at the front and drops it into a sump just between the um, the bunks underneath that little piece of floor that's between the bunks in most forward cabin layouts and it drops the chain there and it just brings that chain away from the bow and uh, stops the boat from pug washing so much so I hope in there somewhere is an answer for you <laughs> Colm uh, if you've got a 60 foot boat with no weight in the bow you have to add a bit but if you've got a 30 foot boat with too much weight in the bow you've got to reduce a bit. I think we're all trying to find um, the, the middle ground here, but I, I've long since given up thinking that I'm gonna make um, 
the the boat uh, Nova Scotia one the open 60 into a, a nice pleasant upwind machine that the shape of it at the back is going to make for a very violent menacing motion going to windward it's completely flat on the bottom it has nothing in the bows at all which makes it into a giant sound box the the skin of the carbon fiber is very tense very sonorous and it's um the noises that come out the front of that boat I had a chap on the boat uh, on on Challenger in fact a couple of years ago who had been in the Navy and done some um, testing that they do for submarine crews or some exercises rather for submarine crews which simulated being depth charged and he said that the experience of being on the uh, the Whitbread 60 going to Windward. I think we're doing the Fastnet race, beating out to the uh, Fastnet Rock. He said that that noise and that experience was similar to being in a, a um, depth charging exercise in the US Navy. So I can assure you that Challenger is a uh, walk in the park compared to Falcon going to Windward. <laughs> but uh, we'll worry about that later on, right? <laughs> it should be some interesting podcasts from me as I'm going to do that. And to, to speak to that, I hope I've answered that question, Colm. To speak to that, the idea is very much that we get into a style of doing this, that I can continue doing this as I sail around the world in November of this year. So you'll find that I'm trying to do a lot less like editing of the podcast. When I very first started doing this, I would edit out every time I said um to the point that I even recognized like what um looks like when it's on that little graphic equalizer sound bar thing which is recording it looks like a little tuner I know that when I say um it makes a shape that looks like a tuner I've decided to kind of cut all that stuff out maybe try and just improve my speaking style but it means that we are moving towards what I'll realistically be able to do when I'm at the, at sea doing the round the world thing uh, at the end of this year and the idea is that I can still keep the podcast going um, as long as I don't have to do like loads of editing and stuff so there's going to be a few more ums from me a few more little <laughs> tuna fishes in my uh, sound bar thing here whatever we'll just ignore all of that and uh, and crack on and do the best we can um, I think the whole point of podcast is that it's natural communication between people and uh, over editing it um, seems to me a bit of a bit of a waste of time. So, um, yeah, we'll be uh, podcast now three times a week. Going to try and stick to that. Seems to be having a very good effect. Uh, if you're interested, I think at the end of about next week, just looking how my figures are going up, we'll be looking at about 10,000 downloads per month, which is awesome because that's, uh, yeah, it's 10,000. Now, obviously, it's not 10,000 people listening to it because it's, uh, it's a smaller band of people who are picking up three three a month. But, um, oh, that's petrifying. Maybe that just means it's like 100 people and they're doing it 12 times a month. Oh, dear. Oh, well, don't think about it, Chris. Don't think about it. I've, uh, I've been uh, very... Uh, specifically told don't worry about download numbers because uh, it's a vanity metric it doesn't matter anyway it's uh, you know whatever's happening is happening I do it for the love of being answer uh, being able to answer individual questions that uh, that are somehow beneficial later on and I guess that's um, that's why we're going to uh, get on to today's main topic which is man overboard which is something I just suddenly realized the other day when I was doing D is for damage like oh I could actually just explain man overboard and maybe just having listened to that once, somebody might actually be able to uh, use that uh, and and save someone's life with it. Um, that is the reason we do this, so we can make it safer, make it more fun, and um, we can take the mickey out of people with uh, white sunglasses. One of the guys who's doing the um, Ocean Globe event in 2023, Javier, he, uh, he wrote to me the other day after I'd been... Uh, 
taking the mick out of white sunglasses. He's like, uh, you do know that I, I wear white sunglasses. I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, so do I. But it's uh, <laughs> but there's a certain kind of person that certainly sometimes wears white sunglasses, and we can we can enjoy taking the mick out of them. But um, if you're a good person and you wear white sunglasses, then you're gonna get a free pass. So. Uh, okay, so what do we got to do here? So uh, Patreon, yes, it is time to announce the winners of the Patreon draw. So if you're not aware of this, you can access a lot of my online content at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the Mariner or one word. If you haven't used Patreon yet, it's a fantastic way that you can support creators, whether that's someone like me doing uh, sailing and boats and all that kind of stuff but it could be music it could be art it could be dance it could be authors that are getting boats built uh, boats built oh my god i'm obsessed authors getting books published um they uh the the great thing about patreon is that it connects the creator and their audience uh directly um they take a small percentage of each payment which just pays for their service and for their involvement and creating this connection but all the money goes directly to the creators and there's all sorts of people on on patreon it's very interesting to have a look around and see what's going on there Five dollars a month uh, is uh, what a lot of people who listen to the podcast have been throwing in, which really, really adds up and is fantastic. That is what we call watch leader level. Uh, watch leader level, you get a, a little a thank you message. A lot of times, I write those myself. I was just doing a couple of those my, this morning, um, and it's um, it's a it's a it's a easy way for you to show the value that you put in what you're listening to on a kind of value for value model. Um, I spend the time doing this. The way the world works, um, you know, I got to have an income from somewhere and time spent doing this diverts me from other things. So what we do is a couple of bucks from you goes in the pot and it all adds together with lots of other folks and gives me a way of being able to uh, sustain myself while I, while I do this stuff. If we move up from there, we're to mate level. The mate level is $20 per month. We're just gonna start getting going now with these seamanship videos. I did a couple in the past, but as I said, it was a little bit uh, tricky to be doing hours and hours and hours of editing when I am you know, not a professional editor. That's definitely in hand now with this new video editing company. So we'll be getting back on those. And the mate level, it's, um, it, it supports me fantastically, but you get something back from it. When you get those videos, you get the uh, half an hour video each week, and I'm excited to get back into those because I think it's a fantastic format whereby all of the wonderful learning that I've done through my career with the incredible role models and mentors and professionals I've worked with, I can share that with a much wider audience. Um, one of the problems with boats, obviously, is that the best knowledge is often gained when you're just one-on-one -on -one with somebody very experienced on the crew and um, that person's time is limited. And sometimes, you know, if it starts getting retold too often, it can end up getting a little bit worn and the, the, the details and the and the flavor and, and flourish to it lost. So the idea is to take what I know, what I've learned, what I've uh, managed to uh, receive from the School of Hard Knocks and, uh, and pass that on to you with those videos. That'll be available to those who are at the mate level, $20 per month. And I say that'll be restarting just now. Up from there is the skipper level, $50 a month. What on earth can I be offering which is useful at $50 a month? Well, uh, you're going to be getting all of the stuff that the lower levels get, obviously access to the videos, access to the other stuff which is on uh, Patreon. Also, I see that Patreon has started a new service whereby um, those people who are uh, 
patrons have been so for a little while will get merchandise which is actually provided through um through through the service through uh, patreon which is pretty cool i as the creator take a smaller percentage of what's going on and then patreon themselves will fulfill the merchandising that uh, that i select so we're just getting a little branding a little logo together now and uh, make that into uh, mariner hoodies and mariner um, t-shirts and uh, who knows what else maybe some white sunglasses with the mariner written on the side there we go um the uh, people that get involved in the skipper level though what they have recognized is that there is a competition what's the competition the competition for uh, skipper level is that you get entered into a prize to uh, do one of our five-day events with spartan so this is going to be on our whitbread 60 challenger or on the open 60 uh Nova Scotia one or on Longobarda when it arrives, which is our 80 foot maxi, which we're going to be going getting soon. So one of those three boats will be able to give you a five day trip. They're normally valued between two and a half thousand and three thousand US dollars. And uh, there's a number of people who have been uh, supporting for the required amount of time. And we're going to announce the winners of that uh, just coming up now. But to continue what comes next, there's two other levels beyond above that. There's round the world crew, which um, two things happen there. Number one, uh, you get entered into a much smaller uh, group of folks. There's limited numbers of round the world crew uh, um, tokens available at Patreon. Um, it means that the event that you're getting involved uh, in, the, the draw that you get involved in is a smaller number of people, a limited number of people. And that draw is for a transatlantic trip. So that's for one of our bigger trips. We can normally get the Atlantic crossed in about 10 days. Sometimes if there's uh, contrary weather, it's going to be 12 or I think we've even done 13. But we've also had it down at like eight days and 23 hours. So a little bit variable, but that'll be from Lunenburg here in Nova Scotia up to uh, St. Pierre, the little French island just off of Nova Scotia, on then to St. John's in Newfoundland and from Newfoundland across to the UK. We'll also be starting to do a return trip, um, which normally we were going and doing things like the Rourke Transatlantic event that goes to the Caribbean. Um, I think that we're going to be steering away from that. We're doing, doing a few less of those kind of events now, focusing a lot more on um, destinations. And we're going to be doing the return leg going up and through the uh, higher latitude as we discussed last year, going up to Norway, the Faroe Islands, uh, onto uh, Iceland and Greenland, and then back to Newfoundland that way. So that's, it'll be going uh, west to east with the Marconi, or east to west on our as yet unnamed northern latitudes uh, trip that brings us back to Nova Scotia. So those people at the um, round the world crew level winning the opportunity to 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 do a transatlantic a bucket list event all from being involved um, with the mariner patreon page which i think is pretty cool um, at the very top of the top of the top is the round the world skipper level which again there's even less of those available and we do have a couple people on that uh, that level 200 dollars a month which is an incredible donation to what i'm doing but there is some pretty cool things coming out the side of it. Again, a separate draw for people at that level to win a transatlantic trip. So a smaller pool of people to be in, but then also the opportunity to put your name or the name of an organization that you're uh, supporting, even if it's a commercial organization, on the side of the race boat going around the world, whether that be my solo Westabout trip at the end of this year or the larger uh, ocean global race trip in 2023. So... Pretty interesting things to be involved in. At $5 a month, you're just, uh, you know, 
throwing some money in the bucket and saying, hey, I value what you're doing here, thanks very much. $20 a month, you're suddenly getting four half hour videos a month um, and uh, lots of learning to be done there. Skipper level, $50 a month, you get involved in a draw to win a two and a half to $3,000 five day trip on a, on a, on a 60 foot race boat. Round the world crew level are $100 per month, another draw for a transatlantic smaller group of people, um, plus all of the other benefits from the other levels. And then round the world skipper, very small group of people and uh, name of yourself or your favorite phrase or picture of a loved one or whatever it is we wanna negotiate with us on the side of the boat going around the world, uh, plus again, another draw for transatlantic. So what does this mean? It means we have three winners at the moment to, um, to recognize. And uh, I've tried to make contact and just make sure everybody's happy with how that's gonna go down. That's done now. So uh, without any further ado, um, at the uh, first level, which is the skipper level, um, we've had people which have been supporting me for over a year now. That's what was the defining um, uh, number, which was important. And the person that has won that is Dean Futy. Dean Futy, a skipper level uh, supporter on Patreon. Uh, Dean, you've won a five-day sailing event with Spartan. So there'll be two days of training and then we'll be on the water. That may well be a Caribbean event or it could be a coastal trip, something like the Mexico Flyer coming from Mexico back up to the US or the Gulfstream Fire that goes from Miami on up to uh, Boston. Um, or, or come and chat to us, whatever it is that uh, you're interested to do. We've also got the uh, Newfoundland Screech, which goes from uh, Nova Scotia to... Um, Saint-Pierre, fantastic to go and get involved in French culture, only about 11 miles off the coast of North America, and then continue on up to St. John's, which is always a good laugh. So I'll be getting in contact with you just now, um, Dean, and uh, we can discuss how that's going to go down. Thanks very much for all your support in the last year, mate. It really, really has made a massive difference. Uh, on up from there, we have Ramesh, 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 Ramesh. Round the world crew, $100 a month. Ramesh has been supporting me for a year now. And Ramesh is winning here a transatlantic trip with us. Now, I know, Ramesh, that you live in Dubai. And uh, I'm not sure how that goes with travel. Uh, Ramesh and I have exchanged a lot of uh, correspondence uh, over the time that uh, he's been involved with Patreon. I know that uh, he listens to the podcast and watch the videos. Thanks very much for all of your support, Ramesh. Um, that transatlantic trip... The way that we're gonna be able to do that in 2021, it's still very complex for me to be able to start to offer trips which have an international flavor to them, but we are gonna be delivering all of our boats back from uh, from Europe, and uh, I'll be contacting Ramesh and finding out if he wants to join us to bring Longobarda back across the Atlantic. It's got nice cabins, Ramesh, it could be nice. Um, or if you wanna come back on Challenger, which would be a little bit more uh, challenging, <laughs> not quite as comfortable, or if you wanna do something in 2022, when we get back on our normal schedule, we'll all understand then how COVID works and COVID restrictions and vaccine passports and all that stuff, and maybe we can do it then. So thank you very much for your support, Ramesh. You've won a transatlantic trip on one of our 60-foot or 80-foot race boats. And that leaves at the very top of the pile who has been supporting me the most incredible fashion in the last 12 months, really made a massive difference to, to my life and the life of my family as we've um, been making our way through a very weird economic um, landscape with COVID. Uh, his name, somewhat cryptic, but I'm, I'm wondering if I even know who this is. He's called Len, he's on Lantau. 
Len, thank you so much, sir. Your name is going on the side of the Round the World boat and you have won the opportunity to do a transatlantic trip uh, either this year on one of the boats or next year or whatever it is that you want to do. We'll, we'll contact you and find out uh, exactly how you want to get that to play out. But um, that support really really worthwhile and to everyone the 36 people who are patrons for me on patreon thank you so much for doing that it really makes a difference and um, i will be doubling down i assure you on patreon getting more content there and i think what i've realized is that it's great to list all of my online uh stuff that i do um you know blogs and videos and all the rest of it but i think a lot more exclusive content for patreon it's so easy for me to just pick up a phone, turn it on myself, talk about what's going on. And for those that are in that community and want to see the details of what's happening, getting um, Nova Scotia one ready for going around the world and picking up longer barter and even just putting moorings in and all the kind of stuff which is every day for sailing. Um, I feel a lot more confident doing that with a group of people who I know are engaged and are interested because they're actually supporting me on Patreon. If you try and put that stuff on YouTube, uh, you know, a wider crowd is a bit like, uh, what's this about? Like, what are you talking about? Because they're not following the whole story. So I'm going to get into that um, as soon as we possibly can and get as much content onto Patreon as possible. But yes, thank you very much, Dean Futi. A five-day event with Spartan, two days of training, probably going to be away from home for a week. So you probably want to start negotiating with your significant other, Dean. Try and explain the fact that you've won a trip on a big boat going somewhere. Uh, Ramesh, uh, I know Ramesh already has experience of uh, being out on boats in heavy conditions. So hopefully he'll be savoring the idea of getting out on the transatlantic. And uh, Len on Lantau, uh, come and join us, Len. Come and... Um, Come and live it up and uh, and get your just rewards for being such a support in the last year. So thank you very much to everyone, everyone there. Now, so we've done some questions on Patreon. We've done our draw. Let's get into the grit of what this is all about, which is meant to be about Man Overboard. Okay, so Man Overboard, how can we do this on a podcast? It's actually relatively easy to describe. Um, I think the first thing I'm going to say is Man Overboard is a phrase which has come through history. I think we know what we're aiming for here. I think the, the idea that we're trying to communicate is that a person has fallen off the ship. Uh, clearly, it's got the word man in it, so it doesn't really seem to cover... 50% of the options which are available for people that might fall over the side of the ship. Is there a word that we can come up with which might be better? This person overboard? Could That's absolutely what we're aiming for. Um, a human being in the H2O, we absolutely could do that. I'm going to stick with MOB for now. I'll just try and like do it as MOB, like MOB is a thing, rather than like pushing the man overboard thing. I'm not yet at a point where I need to freak out about every single word that has got the word man in it, but I do recognize that it is a little stupid to have a phrase which um is so specifically about um uh <laughs> you know half the crew being lost over the side when the other half of the crew are just at risk so uh an mob let's let's put it like that but um you know there are some men that go over the side that uh, you'd be like okay you know someone shouts man overboard you're like i'm okay with that you know <laughs> there are some women that go over the side you're like we need her back immediately like right now so um, it depends on who you are, <laughs> not necessarily what sex you are as to how we deal with you going over the side. So we'll uh, we'll stick with MOB, but we'll just try not to uh, get into too much of the man overboard thing. It's uh, obviously just a member of the crew, which is uh, now in grave or imminent danger. So 
Man overboard happens when um, a mistake occurs. It could be a mistake, uh, a physical mistake. It could be a judgment mistake. It could be kind of philosophical mistake. And describe that, uh, let me put it thus. Uh, a physical mistake can be where the boat moves in such a manner that you get pitched into the organ, okay? So you, it's, it's tricky to guard against that if you don't clip onto the boat. Those things come along, you get pushed in a way that you're not expecting or something hits you in a way you're not expecting and suddenly you're into the ocean. A judgment one, you make a judgment about something that you're gonna go and do and then you lose your footing or whatever and you go into the organ. The only way of guarding against uh, either of these first two things is to be clipped onto the side of the boat. The last one is a kind of philosophical error. People can end up having a incorrect idea as to how serious the situation is to go into the water. It can be that they are not aware of just like how bad it can get. You sometimes get this when people have come from small boats and they're going up onto big boats and they don't recognize like that the rules have changed, that the risk level has changed, and that the way that they're handling the risk is is not appropriate to the, the size of the problem. So if you've been working on a J24 and uh, going into the water is just a case of, oh, just turn the boat around and come back for you and it's not that big a deal, you may philosophically believe that working on the foredeck is uh, a case of like, how hilarious would it be if I fell in the water again? If you're then on a 60-foot race boat that's doing 10 knots and you fall six feet into the water and someone's got to bring a 10 to 30-ton boat back around to get you in heavy seas, you may not have necessarily be thinking about like how serious that might be until you're actually in the water. So um, I, those are not hard and firm kind of uh, descriptors of anything um, that's not written down anyway. But I think certainly... Um, somebody who's about to make a philosophical error uh, may be a person that's decided not to clip on because they don't really see what the point is. They don't understand what the danger is. Um, if you're uh, physically making a mistake, it could be that you thought you were safe and then suddenly the boat shows that, no, you're not safe. The only way of going against that is to clip on. Uh, it might be that you have made a uh, judgment error that you thought you could get away with it and then the boat boat points out to you that nope, uh, not being clipped on or doing that thing that you thought you could get away with that actually the boat uh, pitches you or something pitches you into the water. So I would say that um, the only way of uh, avoiding these situations is to be clipped onto the boat. Let's start with that. Man overboard, person overboard, crew overboard, woman in the water, whatever you want to call it, there is, <laughs> there is a problem here in that it's very simple do not get disconnected from the boat. And if you do not get disconnected from the boat, you will not be uh, overboard, okay? There are obviously a couple of caveats in that. If you've got the long tether that goes from your life jacket down onto that uh, place on the boat where you clip on, if that is very, very long and you're on a smaller boat, there may be enough reach on that tether that you can be both overboard and be clipped on. Well, that's better because at least then there is some kind of chance of, of just stopping the boat and getting you back on board. And as you know from previous podcasts I've done, I now exclusively wear the Timo back toe life jacket. I really believe in that jacket. It is not yet rigged for um, uh, the US Coast Guard tests in the US. So you have to make sure that you've got uh, extra uh, life jackets on board the boat, the big kind of foam ones with the neck and everything else. It's not that the life jacket has in any way got any deficiencies. It's just that the company has not yet passed entirely through the assessment process. But um, a jacket which is 
able to keep you safe even though you are hanging over the side of the boat being dragged in the water is a very useful piece of equipment and if you haven't already checked out that um, podcast that was episode 21 and it's called uh, why i only use the timo back toe life jacket uh if you're in the water and you are being dragged along by other kinds of life jackets, you're going to be towed by the front. It's still uh, a much better solution than being uh, on your own in the middle of the sea, hoping for your boat to come back for you. But obviously, you are going to have a lot of water pushing along in your face, which can create issues with potentially drowning. So uh, being clipped onto the boat, whatever kind of error you make, whether it's a philosophical one or a judgment one or a physical um, change in the circumstances throws you over the side, being clipped onto the boat is the only thing you can do to uh, avoid this issue. However, there are circumstances which occur where it's a, a morally acceptable circumstance that everything has been possibly done to illuminate people to the risks and people have made best judgments they can but just something happens where unfortunately someone goes into the water and I think now of the 2009-2010 clipper race I did around the world where a chap on board the vessel Hull and Humber uh, ended up going into the water in the middle of the Atlantic he was called Arthur and the video exists of Arthur and how he ended up in the water and he literally walked back down the side of the boat on the high side attached to the jack stay uh, absolutely doing what he was meant to do he sat down swung his legs inside the cockpit essentially unclipped from the jack stay which was down the side deck of the boat reached into the center line of the boat from the high side of the boat to clip onto the jack stay and as he moved his head forward the boat kicked and that exact combination of forces was enough for him to be ejected from where he was sitting on the uh, on the cockpit seat and be ejected directly across the boat and it's a big boat 68 foot boat probably 20 foot beam ejected across the boat and out through the guard wires on the loose side and then he was uh, in the water and, and thank goodness uh, Piers Duden a friend of mine who was the skipper at the time was absolutely on top of it and uh, despite uh, dealing with a few issues with the life-saving gear they were able to get Arthur back out the water totally unharmed and uh, a cup of tea and a uh, pat on the back later and he was fine which is the best possible outcome you can get from such a serious situation they were literally thousands of miles from land when that happened us at sea at the same time and it really sent a shudder around the fleet when you realized this was a real thing this could happen and then you start to as a skipper think about the fact that well this boat weighs 40 tons and we're in like 25 to 30 knots out here with a meter and a half to two and a half meter seas and uh you've just got this tiny little person's head that you've got to try and find keep a spotter on and then drive this giant boat back and and, and pick them up safely from the water so all credit to peers that made that happen um well over 10 years ago now but um thank goodness it didn't work out badly for arthur but he was definitely doing everything that he possibly could you could say oh well you know he should have two clips and this that and the other but essentially he was completely within the guidelines um he just a little chink in the armor there and uh, the sea took the, the the full measure so as we get into man overboard situations let's just make it clear stay clipped onto the boat that's the only way of doing it this whole thing of running around with uh, no clip on it's like driving around in your car without a seat belt there was a time when we did it and now we don't there was a time where people ran around on boats with no uh, life jackets clipped onto the deck and now you shouldn't do it if you're in a tiny boat with a highly skilled crew and it's light airs then absolutely go right ahead if you're in a dinghy and you know what's going on it's your bay and you just want to be relaxed and absolutely you make your own judgments of course you can but if you're on a boat i'd say from about 30 foot upwards 
Um, once there's um, lifelines running around the side of the boat, once the boat can do more than five or six knots, um, once there's a few less people on board than uh, you might need to affect a safe recovery, you need to be clipped to the boat. It's just logic. So let's express forward from there. We are now in a situation where somebody has gone into the water. So what do we do first? The first thing we need to do is be aware of the fact that um, how long is it going to take to go back for this person? Okay, that's a funny thing to start with, I know, but let's have a think about it. If it's very, very cold water, even after half an hour, their chances of survival are still 50%, okay? In like five Celsius water, your chances of survival after half an hour are still 50%. So you've got a bit of time. Obviously, uh, 25 minutes might be feeling like a very long time. 15 minutes might be feeling like a very long time. But let's say it was 10 minutes to get back and get that person. Now, I don't think that it's actually realistic, but let's just imagine for a second that it's 10 minutes. That's 600 seconds. In 600 seconds, you can do any sail change within reason that might be required for this kind of thing. It's probably going to be something doing the head sails, main sails. You're not going to be. You might be have to douse, douse a kite, something like that. But you don't have to go into like super freak out like headless chicken uh, mode. You know, you you can go. Okay, this is happening. Now we're going to have to do this. Now we're going to have to do that. And you can go through the process nice and carefully. Uh, if you were to get back there in 600 seconds, that would be plenty of time for the person to get a good chill, a good scare, and then be back on board the boat and actually very little has happened to them. Once you're going north of 15 minutes, 20 minutes, now we're in a situation like, okay, this person, if this is cold water, is in a very, very serious situation. The concern is that you think you're going to be back there in like three or four minutes, and then you start to really, really rush and then you make one of a series of mistakes which are possible, which then leads to you being back there in like half an hour when then we are at a, a very serious juncture in what's going on. The reality is that we have to reduce the distance that the boat gets away from the casualty in the water. And there is only one way of doing that. We have to stop the boat as fast as we possibly can. Now, if we're going upwind, this can be very, very simple because this means literally just uh, tack the boat through the wind and do not release the jib sheet. It's very simple, okay? All you have to do is tack the boat and do not release the jib sheet and the boat is gonna be coming into a uh, hove to position. Now, we need to discuss hove to a little bit. If you're kind of new to this, there is a way of like stopping your boat in the middle of the ocean. It's called heaving to, and it's a super useful tactic to use. I have done it on open 60s. I have done it on Volvo 60s. I've done it on Volvo 70s. I've done it on 110 foot sailing boats with 43 meter rigs. Any boat will heave to, but they all do it a little bit differently. When people say, oh, I find it hard to get my boat to heave to, the normal issue is that you are not counting momentum. The boat is hove to when the uh, the effects of the momentum that it had before it hove to are completely dissipated. You can't tack, crash tack the boat and go into a heave to situation at eight knots and expect the boat to then just stop dead. It's not going to happen like that. You've got to heave to, then you've got to reduce the boat speed as much as possible until you get into a kind of equilibrium, which we're going to discuss just now, which will mean that the boat is traveling very slowly, not stop dead, but is traveling very slowly. How do you do this? You tack the boat and then on the opposite tack, you need to be up into the wind 
almost as close as you can go to the wind. So the sails are almost shaking. Okay, so you're going to come from uh, beating on one side, maybe we're on port tack. We realize, oh my God, someone's gone in the water as the helms person. You're often in a great position to see this happen, uh, see somebody go over the side. Crew can be looking all sorts of way, but the helms person is often at the back of the boat and looking forwards, and that's you know where the crew are, and they'll see them go. So you're going to tack the boat. We're going to go from port tack to starboard tack. The wind's going to go from the port side of the boat to the starboard side of the boat, but we are not going to touch the headsail. So the main's going to go over. If you have check stays or back stays, you're going to have to deal with those. The main is going to remain nice and tight and in the center of the boat. But now the jib is all back to front and inside out. It's on the wrong side of the boat. The boat may heel over a bit more than you're expecting because it's getting this odd uh, input from the uh, from the pressure on the uh, sails at the front. But uh, what's going to happen very, very quickly is you're going to recognize that, wow, this is not aerodynamic whatsoever. Uh, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that non-aerodynamic shape in the sails at the front of the boat. And that's going to become a force that's going to help us stop the boat but if you're doing eight knots as you go through your tack or you're doing six knots or whatever it is that you do through a tack it is not going to work you will just start sailing on the other tack you've got to waste away some speed and you do that by just pointing the boat high until you're pinching into the wind the sail uh, the mainsail will be starting to luff the jib might even be luffing a little bit, although it's now very close to the wind because it's backed. Um, the main is luffing. The front edge of the sail is shaking, maybe. And uh, the boat is slowing down, slowing down, slowing down until it gets down to about like one knot, one and a half knots. You come away from the wind just a little bit. And then what you're going to find is that this odd combination of mainsail and jib have, uh, well, if you're new to this, an unexpected effect that they sort of counteract each other. There's a little bit more going on, but at the most basic level, what we're doing is we're pitching one sail against the other. The mainsail is still in its normal configuration, strapped at the center of the boat and trying to propel the boat forward. But the jib at the front is uh, it all disturbed wind flow on it, and it's trying to essentially turn the boat downwind. It's backed, it's having a lot of pressure applied to it, and it's sort of trying to turn the boat downwind, and it's really retarding the effect of the, of the mainsail. The other part of the combo is the, the rudder. So you've gone through the tack, you've pulled the rudder towards you, you've gone through the tack, uh, or you've turned your wheel or whatever it is and, and, and got the wind onto the opposite side of the boat. You then steered high into the wind to slow the boat down, reduce all of the momentum until we're now in this kind of like hovering position. We then turn the wheel uh, so that the boat is... Um, uh, you know, got the wind fully on one side. We're definitely not in irons. We don't want to be there because we'll start setting off perhaps on the other tack. What you'll find is that the mainsail will keep driving the boat. The uh, jib will keep start trying to turn the head of the boat downwind. And you're going to put the rudder so it turns the boat up into the wind. Okay, your rudder turns, whether it's a wheel or a tiller, turns so that the boat is attempting to turn back into the wind but it has no speed to do this. As we all know, if you try and tack a boat with not enough speed, it doesn't go through the wind. We are gonna induce that situation. We're gonna sit on the edge of a beat with the jib backed, trying to turn the boat downwind, the mainsail trying to drive the boat forwards, and the rudder trying to make the boat go into the wind. Jib sends it downwind, rudder sends it upwind. The jib is acting like a giant air brake, and the mainsail is trying to power us forwards. Can you see how all of that ends up in a kind of equilibrium. Now, you've got to trim it for your boat. I often find that putting the traveler down is very useful. Slide the sheeting position of the main sheet down to lure it is very helpful. You may want to ease the 
um, the mainsail just slightly on its sheet, not enough that it can power up, but just slightly so there's some twist in it. And that helps the boat to deal with the fact that um, it's going to be pointing at a number of different angles to the wind. And with a slightly twisted mainsail, any angle will power up some section of the mainsail higher up or lower down. That's the, you know, the purpose of twist in any situation. The jib, meanwhile, is is doing all sorts of things wrong. It's all over the place. It's on the foredeck where it should be, but it's tacked on the wrong side of the boat. It is probably going to be sheeted in nice and tight. I would say for if you've got a race boat like mine, be very careful of what your radar is doing. If it's on the front of the mast or your um, uh, steaming lights, which is on the front of the mast as well, because this kind of jib action can end up that the top of the jib is right up against the front of the mast. And it can be right over that um, that position. For me on Challenger, man, doing this like eats the, uh, the the radar brackets. I've broken so many radar brackets doing this maneuver. But it's just because it puts my uh, staysail all over my front of my mast. But if this is a scenario where we are trying to save life, so it doesn't matter what happens with the uh, with the jib. So now we are hove to. We've trimmed it, and the 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 the, the helm is in a position where it's trying to turn the boat into the wind. We have now stopped the boat from getting any further away from our casualty in the water. This is where a number of good things can happen. If you're on the beat and somebody falls over the side of the boat, they're more than likely gonna fall to leeward. It's possible they fall to windward, but they're more than likely gonna fall to leeward. If you immediately tack the boat, immediately tack the boat, and you can get yourself into a, uh, a, a, a hove to position relatively quickly with everything balanced, you are a very short distance away from the person that you're trying to rescue. At this point, um, a number of things need to be happening on board the boat. And it's a little bit difficult to uh, describe all of this as like a you do this, then you do that, then you do the other. And some of that is based on the fact that you've got to recognize that you don't know which member of crew it is that can go over the side of the boat. So you can't say, in the event of a man overboard, Larry, you're going to go to the uh, VHF and then Jennifer, you're going to go onto the foredeck and do this, that and the other. You don't know that. Everyone's going to have to move, but these are the kind of jobs that needs to happen. In the 600 seconds that we've got as our like target, we need to uh, get this boat into a configuration where we can go back for the person. But we've got this moment where we've stopped very close to the person. And it's a great opportunity to do a number of very important things that have to happen. Number one, if it hasn't already happened, somebody needs to point at the victim and they need to start giving information to the captain. I am presuming here that when somebody goes over the side of the boat, we know that we have to shout the alarm, okay? Shout the alarm at the top of your valves, man overboard, man overboard, man overboard, and in make sure that those who need to know on your boat, whether it's watch leaders or captain, are uh, aware of what has happened, right? And then you start pointing. Now, if you're doing man overboard training, it can feel a bit ridiculous, like, talking, 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 saying where the person is in the water. And yet, you know, everybody else on the rest of the crew is looking at them and it's um, pretty flat and sunny. And maybe it shouldn't be a person in the water. It should just be like a, a fender and, a, and some rope. Or maybe you've got a mannequin a dummy if you're working with a sail training organization. It can feel silly doing it. It isn't going to feel silly doing it in the event of an actual emergency. What you are doing is absolutely crucial to what's happening. From my position as a skipper, say I was below decks and I hear man over, man over, man over. Okay, I come on deck. Okay, I understand. Where is he? Someone's pointing. I'm going to say to them, just keep calling every 10 seconds and tell me where this person is until they are on board the boat. Okay, I would say 
that what you need to do is get two people pointing and two people looking. I would say that if possible, they need to be sat down so that they are in a very stable out of the way position, that they need to be uh, physically using their arms to point at the, uh, the casualty, which I'll talk about in just a second, and that they know, okay, I'm looking as a captain for information every 10 seconds. Now, what is this information that you're giving? Firstly, we're gonna divide the area around the boat into a clock face where the front of the boat is at 12 o'clock and the stern of the boat's at six o'clock. This gives a very simple relative uh, series of um, reference points from the boat, which we can all understand. There's no point saying north, south, east, west, because how are you gonna keep track? There's no point in saying uh, things which are relative to other points in the water unless you know he's still next to that other boat he's still next to that mooring boy whatever it is that could be beneficial but in open water a clock face is very easy so you're going to say three o'clock for example if they're on the starboard beam and then you're going to give a distance unit now what's the distance unit technically at sea it should be yards okay it's not actually meters for horizontal distances on charts now which give depths we've got meters but theoretically if you're giving a distance in nautical miles a subdivision of that would be yards now the good thing is that yards and meters are basically the same people would say, well, what about boat lengths? Boat lengths are okay. If you've got a trained crew and you're talking about how far is it to the start finish line on a race, boat lengths might be awesome. But if you're uh, coming on board a boat and you're used to a 36 foot, whatever it is, and now you're on board my 60 foot, whatever it is, and you start giving boat lengths, there is a little part of my brain which is going, how do you know how to calculate 60 foot lengths here? You might be very, very experienced of dividing up a range into the boat lengths you're used to, but are you actually giving me in these boat lengths or are you giving me in the boat lengths that you're used to? Well, we never do something super new in an emergency if you can if you can possibly handle it. Why not do it in meters and why not start getting a bit of a skill for doing that? Now we all, you know, have to judge how, how big is your living room in meters? Do you know? Can you remember from like the cut sheet when you're buying the house? Like how just look at it, like how long is it? How long is it to that next tree? How far is it over to that parked car just over there? A, a step pace for an adult is about a meter. It's about a yard. It's three feet. Just start working out like how accurate you are at this. Whenever I'm on the boat doing this, I ask people to recognize things that are around us. Then we get on the radar and actually ping things. And we find out that people have no real idea how to judge distance. And, and why would they? Because some of the distances you can be dealing with on the water, it's probably much longer than you've ever had to judge accurately. And there's a foreshortening of it because the, the, the disturbances on the surface of the water, you know how it always looks like there's wind just coming? A lot of times that's because all the individual ripples on the water, as you get further and further away and you start to work with perspective, all those ripples appear closer, which means that you've then got more friction on the surface of the water and therefore more wind further away. The reality is it's probably the same amount of wind that's around the boat where the ripples are more space, but it just doesn't look that way because of perspective. So judging distance can be very, very difficult. Let me give you a way that you can make it easy. Just make it up. Make it up. Use big values if they're further away. Use bigger values if they're getting even further away. Use smaller values if they're getting closer and try and use small to accurate values if they're inside of about 50 yards, okay? The reality is 
the skipper is only listening to every fifth or sixth thing you're saying as lots of other things happen on board the boat. They just need to know roughly the relative position and whether it's increasing or decreasing. You can add that to what you're saying. Nine o'clock increasing 30 meters, nine o'clock increasing 40 meters. You know, you can put that in and that's enough and you just keep doing it and keep doing it. The reason you have two people doing it is in case one loses what's going on. Now that's where the arm pointing comes into it. The arm pointing gives you um, a physical reference to what's going on. The boat is going to be turning, it's going to be changing its orientation. The people who are looking at the uh, casualty in the water, subconsciously they'll start to work out where that person is relative to anything else which is on the boat which gives them a frame of reference. Like they're looking for the fact that it's that little head in the water is about one foot to the right of the shrouds that they're sat next to. But if they turn and look at somebody and say, no, no, I, I haven't got that rope or whatever it is that they say and then look back, if the boat turns at that same moment, they will lose where the person is in the water because now that head is not one foot away from the shrouds relative to them. Now they're five feet away from the shrouds because the boat turned through 90 degrees while she were turned around. What's interesting is that our internal... Um, I guess like uh, uh, balance and kind of uh, spatial awareness and our understanding of what's going on uh, around us in the world. If you point at the person as the boat moves, your brain tends to pick up on the movement and it will move your arm even though uh, you don't kind of like command it to do that. It's um, it's a strange it's a strange thing, but if people have their hands up pointing at the casualty in the water, they can often keep track of the casualty uh, almost subconsciously as they look away from the casualty because their arm will move uh, relative to the boat's movements. Try it if you don't believe me, but it's the reason why having your hand up there is so important. And it's the reason why you feel like a bit of an idiot when you're doing the um, the, the exercise with just a fender in the water, um, you know, because you've got your arm out pointing at something on a flat sunny day where everyone can already see it. A word about um, going into the water for man overboard. Do not enter the water to practice man overboard. This is an absolute rule. It used to be very popular. It used to be very cool. At the highest level, there were naval officers, naval captains, who would like walk across the bridge of their ships in their uh, swimming cozies with their towel, not say anything to anybody, and then jump off the ship and would be relying on the fact that their crew were so alert that the crew would recognize, hey, hey, what's going on here? The old man's got uh, his swimming cozy on, like maybe we've got a bit of an evolution coming. But there have been occasions where they just jumped off the side of the ship and no one realized. And they're like, where's the captain? Like, oh, I saw him in his uh, swimming costume. And like, oh my God. And they have to do a Williamson turn and go back and try and find this person. One time I know they did find him. One time I know they didn't find him. So um, going over the side uh, in your swimming cozy as a naval captain, probably not an issue you're worried about going over the side and then being the man overboard. I I used to do that. I remember when I worked in Hong Kong, I used to do it. And then I had a very unfortunate experience where the person who I left on board as the, the person in charge, who was the, the mate of the boat essentially, but it was actually quite inexperienced. Um, he did the maneuver, but did not understand how to slow the boat down properly and ended up coming back to rescue me from a from basically sailing downwind to me. Um, when that happened, I had the opportunity to grab hold of the boat, which was possible because ropes were hanging over the side and it was quite low slung to the water. It was a 36 foot open expedition boat with 12 participant crew on board. And um, I grabbed hold of the side of the boat, got dragged alongside the boat for, you know, 30 seconds before I was hauled on board. But the uh, barnacles on the waterline on that boat in Hong Kong 
just savaged my stomach. I had a, a, a PFD on, which was a, a, a possible life jacket solution for Outward Bound back in those days, a personal flotation device. And um, it savaged my stomach, man. The, the barnacles ripped a, a load of scars into my tummy, which uh, I then realized uh, I was petrifying the, 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 the participants, my crew that were on board the boat, because yes, they picked me up, but now there was blood all over me and, uh, and I had caused that emotional disturbance. So um, for the fact that, that uh, you know, it, it might not go well and you might scare yourself doing the man overboard, as I had, from the fact that you may not recover the person back onto the boat at all, as per the naval captain example, but also from the fact of just, you know, high level looking down at it, we've discussed the fact that uh, a member of the crew in the water is a very serious situation. You know, it's it's we talked about the fact that it could be a uh, a mayday. It's a, a situation in which you've got uh, grave or imminent danger to a member of the crew, which you definitely have if someone goes into the water. So what's the difference if they're getting in the water to be the man overboard dummy? It is now a man overboard. You have created a man out overboard out of no man overboard. So do not go into the water to to practice man overboard. Um, options you've got would be you can get a load of ropes and uh, hang them all together and uh, tie them onto a fender so that there's serious weight to this thing and it doesn't blow around. Or if you're very lucky, if you're training with someone like Clipper in the UK, and I hope that Spartan will start to do this as well soon, is that you have a life-size, uh, life, life weight, you have life-size and life weight, something, a mannequin that floats that's the same size and same weight as a person. I think they always get named Bob. And um, what that does is, firstly, it locks the um, the man overboard uh, decoy into the water in exactly the same way that would happen with a man overboard. So not like blowing around on the surface like you might get if you're trying to get a, a fender back or something. But it also gives the people on board the boat who are training the opportunity to see what it's like to try and get a real body weight out of the water and a body weight which is not assisting you. It's very, very different trying to get dead weight out of the water as opposed to some, you know, who you're going to ask to go in the water to do your man overboard thing. Probably like one of the young ones who's on the boat is probably going to get uh, thrown into that position and uh, they're going to be quite lithe and, and gymnastic as they get themselves back on board the boat. Not so if someone's unconscious or unable to help or, or whatever. So, if you can practice with yeah your mooring ropes all hanged together and then tied together four or five of them time on a big fender chuck that in the water um, uh, and if not if you don't have anything else you know your own uh, damn boy marker you've got that uh, weighted damn boy post with a long pole on it that is a good thing to go and get um, it is going to be something that is in the water if you need to do a man overboard and you know that's what you're actually going to be trying to find anyway your damn boy pole I will say this. If you mess up the recovery, you will drive over it and you will probably destroy it. <laughs> and if you have a bigger boat, as happened when I was doing this with Clipper, um, they were literally having to buy a new damn boy pole every week until in the end they're like, do not use your damn boy poles anymore because uh, obviously it's a couple of hundred dollars to replace that. So put something into the water that allows you a, a proper decoy, but make sure it's something heavy so that it doesn't blow around too much. If you can use a, a life-size, life weight thing, but uh, whatever it is that's in the water, 
you're very quickly going to realize that um, not much of it is showing. Okay, a fender might be a little bit easier perhaps because if you haven't put much weight on the bottom, it will just sit quite high. But for a human body going into the water, the only thing which is going to be visible above the surface, God help them if they've not got a life jacket on, is their head. If they have got a life jacket on, you are going to have the bladder of the life jacket on the surface of the water and then hopefully the spray shield over their face. Um, but there's still not going to be very much. How much in height of you is going to be showing is say you're six foot tall big strapping lad you're on the boat no problem at all and you go into the water there's going to be about one foot the height from your shoulders to the top of your head is going to be visible and if you're very lucky you've got your life jacket on and you've been doing everything right hopefully that bit that's showing is going to be bright yellow and it's going to have retroflective tape on it but uh, one foot waves will be the size of this person's head while they're in the water. Most of them's underwater, just a little bit showing. A one foot wave is a very small wave, okay? If you're at the beach and a one foot wave comes in, even your children continue to bathe. If you're at the beach and a six foot wave comes in, then you've got a quite a large wave, which is quite intimidating even to an adult. A six foot wave at sea is still a very small wave, yeah? It's a two meter wave coming in. Remember that not all waves at sea are like coming in like breaking crest, like gray beards in the Southern Ocean. Two meters is just the height of the wave above the median a height of what's going on out there. Um, most oceanic swells would be a meter, a meter and a half, any kind of business out there at all, and you're soon into two meter waves. So the person is gonna be very hidden behind anything over let's say two foot waves by the time you're up to a meter at three foot waves it's going to be very difficult to see them at all and again i'd refer you back to that um, black and white image which is i think in the i think it's in the opening pages of 117 days adrift by morris and marilyn bailey where they actually have their life raft in front of the camera only a couple of hundred yards in front of the camera and you can't see the damn life raft and uh, obviously it's a boat and it's like six or eight foot across and it's got height to it and you just can't see it because the wave so don't underestimate how hard it's going to be to see someone in the water and that's why that person or hopefully people who are watching what's going on with that crew member can um, can help you stay connected to what's going on this is the right time to bring in the fact that technology is now giving us some very exciting, very important um, uh, pieces of equipment which can really help with this uh, situation. But let me let me go over the new technology at the end of it. It's definitely going to help you out, but it is an aid to man overboard. It is not the solution to man overboard. In the end, you're going to have to go back and get that person. So person's in the water, somebody is standing or people hopefully standing, watching, pointing and giving information about where that person is in the water. We have crash tacked the boat so it's as uh, close to the person as possible. Um, I'm going to discuss going downwind in just a second. I do understand obviously you could lose somebody over the side of the boat when you're going downwind but let's deal with now with a white sails situation and you're able to tack the boat and then heave to on the other side. The reality is that modern boats are um, able to engage two different forms of propulsion to get themselves to a particular point on the water. You've got your sails, which obviously is what we're all about. It's what we love. They, until the 70s, let's say, were definitely the main engines of the boat. Back in the day, we had this uh, this. Uh, 
kind of a boat which was a motor motor sailor right a motor sailor is a boat which is particularly set up to operate main engines but then they're being assisted by the sails and not just that you kind of both have them going but there's a way of trimming sails that particularly if you're on anything up to like a a beam reach really you can get quite a lot of advantage even when you start to go off the wind you can still get a powerful advantage from a well-trimmed sail which has been trimmed to help with an engine uh, and the two are working together the reality is from about let's say the 70s to give it a number onwards that the the definition of a motor sailor was that uh, the boat could be driven at its hull speed by the sails or by the engine that either could do the job of bringing the boat up to its hull speed which if you're on a 40 foot boat's about 8.3 knots right from the development of the you know the Yamaha Westerbeek all these little Volvo engines that we all know and love such a such a key part of what's going on in, in sailing those engines can drive the boat at close to hull speed most of boats there's most 40 footers will do eight knots as long as the bottom's clean you've got a decent sized prop on it the engine's doing what it should do the intake filter's clear and it's getting enough uh, diesel it'll drive the boat at uh, hull speed so essentially most boats now are motor sailors and we need to keep that in mind because we have this incredible resource down beneath our feet in the cockpit, the diesel stasel, the, the iron stasel, whatever you want to call it, that can be your greatest friend to get you quickly back to this person that's in the water in our target idea of 600 seconds. 60 seconds in a minute, six minutes, can we get, sorry, 10 minutes, can we get back to this person? 10 minutes seems like an age from the person going over the side of the boat but i can tell you from my experience of listening to skippers who have done man overboards from people that have been in the water having gone over the side of the boat 10 minutes is like a gold level time 20 minutes is much closer to it by 30 minutes it's all getting a bit um shonky and there's plenty that are north of 30 minutes with people coming out of the water in a very worse wear so if you're talking 10 minutes we need to uh, set up the boat to be in a situation close by the person where we can perform a rescue. Your engine is a fantastic piece of equipment, but we must use it in the right way. As the person goes into the water, we shout man overboard, someone starts pointing, someone starts giving information about where that person is in the water, and we'll be thinking about deploying our safety gear. We immediately crash tack the boat. I say think about deploying safety gear because the fact of the matter is, particularly if you're going upwind, no one's gonna like leap off the side rail, go to the back, jump on the safety gear and get it into the water nor is the helmsman going to just let go of the helm and they reach over and do it probably what's going to happen is a process is about to be engaged in where we will get the life-saving gear over the side of the boat if the helmsman can just focus on tacking the boat and the whole crew know what's about to happen man overboard if you're on the side deck of a racing boat means get your asses in off the side rail because this boat's about to tack and it's going to heal way over on the other side okay so everybody gets in start pointing doing their thing heaving to or just before whenever you can get your safety gear into the water which we'll cover in a second and then we need to be thinking about how to maneuver the boat back to the person if you attempt to sail the boat back to the person you are already um, drifting away from an optimal course of action if you don't have any opportunity but drive the boat uh, using the sails you need to be very aware of the fact that this could take a while and you need to be really considering exactly what you're going to put in the water for this person, uh, how cold the water is, and how serious this is going to get for the person in the water until you can get back to them. Here's a thought. Let's say 
you think you're going to drive your 36 foot boat back to get somebody out the water you crash tack you then set off on whatever's your course of action. i'm not even going to describe what the course of action are that involve uh, sailing for now because it, it worries me too much that people would attempt to do this you, you set off on a reach with the idea to like pick up speed and get your plan sorted out or whatever and then you tack the boat at the end of that reaching period you come back and you should be at a slightly slightly uh, lured position to the person and then you're going to shoot up like in irons with the sails shaking and stop alongside the person and haul them on the boat that's the basic kind of dinghy pickup if you don't have an engine and that's what people think they're going to do in a nine ton 40 foot boat when they've got minimal experience of ever drifting the boat up on the wind like that and trying to stop to next to somebody and understanding what's going to happen with the rudder when the boat starts sailing backwards and it all ends up a massive mess. So I think if you're going to say, hey, I'm going to sail this boat back to somebody, I would work on the base. It's probably going to be half an hour. Okay, half an hour is probably what it's going to take you. Unless you're some kind of sailing genius or uh, particularly skilled or particularly lucky. Um, I would say for me to get my boat back to somebody by sailing it back to them, I would count on them being in the water for at least half an hour. At that point... The safety gear that you put into the water, that little plastic coit, that little uh, damn boy thing, uh, this person's going to be very cold and very afraid and probably uh, taking in a lot of water if they haven't got their spray shield down or if they get a wave over their face. I think that person is on for a very traumatic experience. That's what you're committing them to. So let's just make sure that everybody understands that. I would say that in the event that you think that... Um, you're going to be doing that kind of maneuver. If you have a life raft on board the boat, I'd be seriously considering the fact that you're going to go back past them and just sail past them and release the life raft to them. Because really the chance of you stopping safely in such a manner that you can pick them back up, I'd just get the life raft in the water and, and see if you can do it. The life raft is a resource. And again, people like freak out about like, when should you use it, not use it? If you've got somebody in the water and you don't think, and it's cold water, and you don't think you're gonna be able to pick them up for half an hour, putting the life raft in the water for them is like the least you can do. You should make them a cup of tea and put it in the life raft and bring it back past them. It's gotta be quicker than that. So to get back to where we started, using the engine is what you're gonna do because if you've got it available it would be ridiculous not to It'd be negligent not to it can position you anywhere on the surface of the water without any hassle at all you use the engine to park the boat you use the engine to get it into the travel lift well it's the machine on board the boat that does positioning of the boat very accurately you need to use it how do we strike the balance between the engine and the sails because the engines and sail the sails obviously a very very reliable option here and we have a very big concern that the egg beater of the engine down below the water could be extremely dangerous to the person that you're picking up so we need to be very careful about how we use the engine and also how we're going to um, pick up the person uh, without them getting uh, involved in the engine let's say so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to have already briefed of our crew as to what this is happening this shouldn't be done on the fly we're going to crash tap the boat we're going to get our safety gear out the back we're going to have people pointing to whatever's uh that wherever that person is and giving ranges i say at this point also this is where someone's going to go down and they're going to be on the vhf doing a mayday okay we'll come to that a little bit later on but this is the appropriate time somebody in the water unless you are literally planning it um and it's 
part of what's going on and it's all fun and giggles. If someone goes in the water, it's a mayday. It's a grave or imminent danger to the vessel or crew and this is the right moment to do it. Someone goes down below and starts doing the VHF. Somebody is um, pointing or hopefully a couple of people are pointing if you've got enough crew for it so that you've got a bit of redundancy and backup there. Somebody or people have gone to the back of the boat to deploy the life-saving gear that you've got, horseshoe life boy, dam boy, whatever that might be. And the skipper of the boat or the helms person of the boat has crash tacked the boat and brought it to a stop close to the person. What do we do next? We're going to roll up the jib. Okay, we're going to roll up or drop the jib. What will happen is that if you do nothing else at this moment, nothing else, you're already almost into the wind with this boat because you've hove too close to a beating angle. You're going to now get rid of the jib. What's going to happen to the boat? The mainsail is strapped in the center. It's just going to weathercock directly into the wind. The bows are going to come directly into the wind. And you may even find that the boat starts going backwards a little bit. You need to be cautious at this moment because the boat will go backwards a little bit, maybe if the wind's stronger. And then remember that your rudder inputs, your tiller inputs are going to be opposite. So if you keep the rudder in the center and the jib goes away, it'll be nice and easy to drop the jib because it's wrapped across the foredeck because it's backed at this point. Um, and it's a nice stable jib to be working with. Um, your crew can, it might be a little tricky to bring down because the, uh, you know, it's going to have pressure in it. A little ease on the sheet might help the foredeck crew. A lot of jibs need the, particularly like Yankee jibs need the, the sheet to be eased slightly, but that's got to go away. And this is a great time to mention the fact that, you know, all jibs that are on uh, Hanks, you should have a tack strop, which is a short length of rope or webbing, which has got a carabiner or a snap shackle on the end of it, which is, a, it is attached permanently at the base of the stay, at the fore stay or the, uh, the inner fore stay if you've got a staysail. It's attached there. It's got this carabiner or snap shackle on it. And you just reach up and clip it onto the halyard of that sail. The sail comes down. This thing goes in, it clips onto the halyard, not onto the sail, clips onto the halyard, and then the halyard is brought tight. What it will do is it will pull this, it will keep the sail pulled down. And if you're interested later on, because you're holding the halyard and not holding the sail, you can actually do sail changes. And this is a way of holding onto your halyard. You clip, clip your tack strop into the halyard, hold the halyard, the sail stays down, which is great for this circumstance, but you can change the sail if you need to. So tack strap on, we now got, I've got headsail and the mains pinned in the center. Now, I don't know where you're gonna be relative to the person in the water right now because you have, um, it's your circumstance. If it's nighttime, um, torches playing out from the boat onto the water can be awesome. But we do have to bear in mind the fact that the uh, helms person can get blinded by this. It's not necessary for us to freak out. The helms person can close their eye, as we've always said. Close one eye. Keep your uh, your night vision if that's going to become important later on. You don't know. Um, try not to point your torch back at the person who is um, the helms person. And this can often be done if you are looking out onto the water to um, try and uh, show the position of the person in the water with the uh, retroflective uh, stripes. Take off your head torch and hold in your hand, and then you'll tend to look back and talk to the cockpit area uh, and keep your torch on the person in the water rather than turning and then blaring uh, that light into the eyes of the people in the cockpit. So everybody should be staying calm. We've got 600 seconds to do this, and then we are now inside of the first 60 seconds. It went man overboard, man overboard, man overboard. Okay, I've got it. I'm gonna crash tack the boat, says the skipper. 
Uh, somebody start coming off to get the life-saving gear. The boat comes up into the wind and starts to arc its way around. All any crew that might be on the side deck rail move inboard and get ready for next operations, which would be basically come to your evolution positions if you're on a racing crew, come back to the cockpit, whatever you're doing if you're cruising. The boat goes through the eye of the wind. The jib is backed. The boat is then held close to the wind and the, all of the way is taken off until we get into a situation where we've got the helm pointing into the wind, the jib's backed, and we've got people at the back getting this life-saving gear over the back of the boat. We've got somebody down on the VHF starting to send our VHF message, and we've got people pointing at the casualty in the water. We are now shifting into the, we're going to go and get the person. We are now getting the jib down. Let's say getting the jib down takes another minute, and we are going to start to get the boat ready. At this point, nothing really needs to be done. The helm now can be eased so that the, the, the wheel is straight. The boat is going to start pointing into the wind as the mainsail becomes the only aerodynamic force on the boat. The rudder's straight. The boat is going up and down the waves, pointing into the wind. Somebody's at the back of the boat distributing the life-saving gear. And uh, anybody, I would say, who's not got a life jacket on or can't clip onto the boat needs to be inside the boat. If there's anybody inside the boat, what could you be doing? Well, the person's gonna come out the water, they're probably gonna need a sleeping bag, they're gonna need a cup of tea, you need to work out where the first aid kit is, um, you need to start getting going with how we look after the person after out the water, as well as, of course, getting ready with a mayday. On the deck of the boat now, we're two minutes into what's going on and we've got a boat which has deployed its life-saving gear, has got a person in the water nearby, we've got eyes on that person, no one's shouting or running around like headless chooks, but the foredeck workers have dropped the uh, jib and we are now in a position to go to the person. We need to start the engine. Now starting the engine in this situation, you might rush into it. Do not rush into it. <laughs> I was about to give you like a long description, but no, I think just do not do not start the engine just yet. You have to check and make sure there's no ropes in the water. I cannot underline this enough. We are now two minutes into something which we're hoping is gonna take 10 minutes to go and get this person, 600 seconds, right? If you foul this up and the engine starts and it sucks in a rope, you are immediately onto that other scenario of having to take half an hour to go and get them with the sails, if you're lucky. You're gonna to have to get the jib back up the boat's gonna be sailing around, you have to do all these evolutions, it's gonna get really complicated. You have to check and make sure, okay, is there any, is there a shaft break on this boat? Is there, you know, is there things that we have to do? Do we have enough fuel in this tank? Let's check the day tank, let's check the, all things to do with the engine now need to be done. And if it takes a full minute from declaring I'm starting the engine to the point where it's running in neutral, then you have done your job right, okay? there is. That's why I say about the 600 seconds, just relax, okay? You just get the engine started, get the mainsail pinned in the center, get the life-saving gear as fast as you can to the person in the water, keep an eye on them in the water, get things ready for them down below, and get your VHF message on the, on the way. Now we're gonna go into the next phase. Now we're gonna go into the bit where we go and try and get the person. So we gotta deal a little bit with the physics of the boat and what's happening in terms of crew psychology and the person in the water. The boat is going to be bobbing around, uh, shaking itself because it's got this mainsail which is pinned in the center. It's now got an engine running in neutral that we know there's no ropes in the water. We've got fuel, everything's good to go. Members of crew are down below decks doing what they're doing. Everybody on deck is keeping their butt on the deck if they don't need to do anything else. And we're being careful if it's nighttime not to shine lights in people's eyes. 
We are now going to try and maneuver to go and get our person out of the water. Where do we need to be? Well, where we need to be is actually decided by what should be very transparent uh, circumstance or very transparent forces. The fact of the matter is, we discussed even earlier on in this podcast, the fact that boats will pitch because there's less buoyancy in the bow and the stern because they taper at the bow and they taper at the stern, unless you're unlucky enough to have an open 60 and are stupid enough to think you're going to go and beat the wrong way around the world in it. But I digress. They're going to be tapered, which means they're going to pitch. Where is the pitching least on the boat? Which area of the boat has the least pitching movement? It's the middle of the boat. Okay, if you have a toilet on the boat, put it in the middle. There's less pitching. Where is the amount of roll on the boat can be least? Well, in the center of the middle is where all these forces are at their minimum. Certainly the ones where the boat moves around its own internal axes, not things like surge and heave, which is do with the motion of the ocean, but the boat in terms of yaw and pitch and roll, it is least felt in the center of the boat. Great place to sit if you're not feeling too well, right? We need to bring the person onto the boat at the middle of the boat. And why do we need to do that? We need to do that because if the bow of the boat rides out of the water in a wave and comes down on the person, you will kill them. If the back of the boat rides out of the water on a wave as you are passing over waves trying to get to them, remember that's how it looks when a boat is traveling over waves, the front pitches out, the back pitches out. If they are underneath the curvature and the radius of the bilge when that boat comes down, very serious injuries will ensue, okay? The best possible piece of equipment for a man overboard to have on is a helmet, but it's pretty unlikely that they will. You could do that. I just thought of that, actually. Maybe that's a thing. Those, like, bicycle helmets that you can get, you know, that uh, they're all made of foam and what have you, throw that. Have one of those. Attach it to the, to the, to the, the horseshoe life boy. If you're in the water, put the flipping helmet on. Now, I don't know how that works with um, <laughs> with your uh, other gear that you're going to have on and your spray screen. But if there's one thing that happens is people get their heads bonked when they're coming back onto a boat in this kind of situation. It's very serious. So we need to keep the boat away from the person. We've got this tiny little eggshell head and we've got this great big fiberglass, metal, carbon fiber, whatever it is, boat. And we've got to get the two real close together. So to minimize the chance of them coming underneath the boat, we're going to do we're going to bring them on at the middle of the boat now what other benefits are there the propeller is not in the middle okay so the propeller is going to be towards the end of the boat so we're going to bring them onto the boat in an area where where the propeller is not so if they do start to go under the boat for whatever reason their feet or even them is nowhere near the prop okay they're going to come on at the middle of the boat what else is at the middle of the boat the shrouds from the mast attach at the middle of the boat maybe you've got two masts but that main mast whatever it is it's at the middle of the boat so for the rescuers who are on the deck who are trying to get the person out of the water that is something real solid that they can hold on to which is going to assist in them being a useful rescuer now the next thing the boat is uh, sitting out of the water it's freeboard may only be a couple feet for smaller boats but even by the time you get to like a 35 40 foot boat it is not an amount that somebody can like climb up easily. It's not an amount that someone can reach down from easily. And if you're up on 60 foot boats or even like this 80 footer I'm getting, it's a very, very large uh, distance that we need to like work out somehow how to get past this. Um, the freeboard can be reduced if you can heal the boat over. But 
how can you heal the boat over? Well, hang on. And we've got this mainsail, right? The mainsail's up. So if a mainsail could assist us to heal the boat over, we'd reduce the freeboard. Aha. So we want to get the person onto the boat at the middle of the boat where it's less likely for them to go under the bow or under the stern, where it's less likely for them to get caught up in the engine. And I should add, it's easier for someone standing at the helm to see them forwards, you know, a nice, easy place to be, where there's lots of things for the rescuers to hold on to and halyards, which come out the mast and are by the middle of the boat. So we've got all sorts of good things around the middle of the boat. Plus, we have perhaps a way, a mechanism for healing the boat over in the mainsail which will then reduce the freeboard, which if you're going to bring them on at the stern because you think, oh, it's cut out in the back, it's because you're thinking the freeboard is easier to overcome in that area. But if the back of the boat lifts out the water and comes down on their head, you kill them. If they go under the back of the boat with the, the engine, you know, God help you if you're in reverse, like backing towards you, you suck them in. But the, the stern is kind of like right because you're thinking about reducing freeboard, but there's so many dangers that the better way to go is to reduce the freeboard on the waist of the vessel. So where are we going now in the second phase? We've we've done all these things we talked about. We're now sitting there pegged into the wind uh, with the engine in neutral, crew are doing things down below deck, sending mayday messages, um, getting things ready for the person, getting a cup of tea in a sleeping bag and doing all that good stuff. People are pointing at where this person is. We are now gonna go to an upwind position. Okay, now where exactly upwind? Well, the helms, helms person, is looking forward naturally from their driving position, whatever that may be, right? Whether it's tiller or, or wheel. And the mainsail, whether you like it or not, we can kind of like, we can stop it from being quite so powerful and quite so useful, but it's still trying to drive the boat forward. So we need to be in an upwind position that the person is to leeward of the vessel and the person needs to be forward of the beam of the boat. So if we take a line through the shrouds, through the mast, and through the shrouds on the other side, perpendicular to the central axis of the boat, they want to be in one of those forward quadrants, depending on where exactly you're picking them up from, whether it's doing port or to starboard. We can maybe mention that in a second where you choose one or the other. The person is going to be ahead of you and to leeward of you. Okay, so you're going to drive the boat now. Your engine if you're driving the boat along and it's got the mainsail pinned in the center, I'm imagining that your mainsail was probably at the correct uh, reef setting for the for the prevailing wind that you had going at that moment. Um, if you're driving around in 40 knots, you're probably gonna be quite heavily reefed. If you're driving around in 10 knots, it's probably a full mainsail. If you've got the appropriately sized mainsail, a decently sized engine for the boat, about one horsepower per foot, is probably enough to overcome a lot of the effects of the mainsail. Not all of the effects, but it will have overcome some of the effects of the mainsail. It'll allow you to drive forwards, like bow into the wind. It'll allow you to drive at a kind of beating angle, but then the main's going to start to pick up and, and start to, you know, work as a, as a sail, which is correctly sheeted to the center line of the boat and is now trying to beat. But what happens if you bring the boat around so that the mainsail is at 90 degrees to the direction of the wind? What if you put the wind exactly on the beam of the boat with the engine and the rudder? So now you've got the mainsail pinned in the center, you've got no headsail, and the wind's coming at 90 degrees to the boat. What will happen to the boat? The boat's gonna heel over because the main is way over tight. It's way over sheeted. Now, is it gonna fall over? No, because it's not a dinghy and it's not a motorboat and it's not a raft. It's a boat that has a big, deep keel on it, a heavy keel, and it has what we call ultimate stability. It's gonna continue 
providing more and more stability. In fact, an increasing amount of writing moment will occur the further the boat leans over. So we don't have to be scared of this. The boat's gonna lean over, that's fine. But what is gonna happen to the freeboard height? It's gonna be reduced, isn't it? The freeboard height is gonna be reduced. And what do we desperately need to happen if we're gonna make this uh, save um, at, the, at the waist of the boat? We need the freeboard to be reduced. And then we have quite a, a vertical surface at the waist of the boat. We haven't got that, um, that rounding that occurs more at the bow and more at the stern. We don't have the opportunity to drop the bow or drop the stern onto the person. We don't have the propeller involved. The halyards are right there. We can use the shrouds to hold onto. The pitching is less, the rolling is less. We have got a great position in the middle of the boat. Now, do you bring them on on the port side or the starboard side? This can come down to your engine. If you have an engine which kicks to port when you go astern, you have a, a clockwise prop that when you're driving forward, the propeller uh, drives clockwise as viewed from astern. When you go into reverse, it will kick to port, i.e. the paddle wheel effect on the propeller turning, the propeller is now going anti-clockwise. It will have a natural kind of walking effect which will walk the back of the boat over to the port side, it kicks to port. If you've got, is it Volvo engines that they have, they kick to starboard when they go in reverse because they have a counterclockwise propeller when it's driving forward, viewed from the stern. Whichever way your boat kicks, uh, how would you test this? You're in a marina in flat water with no sails, no nothing. You stick it in reverse, does it go straight backwards or does it try and pull itself to one side or the other? Whatever side it pulls to, that's the side you want to be rescuing somebody on. That's also your de facto side for, which is your preferred side for docking. So it means that you can be driving forwards. And then when you go into reverse, the boat's ass will naturally kind of move in the direction that you want it to go closer to the dock or in this circumstance, closer to the person in the water. So I know on my boats, I need to have them on the port side and I need to be able to, um, I have a nice clear view across the deck so I get my crew are out the way while I'm docking or while I'm doing this kind of practice man overboard maneuver. My crew are clustered primarily around the shrouds and around the, the mast uh, at the, uh, the middle of the boat. That's where they're going to be doing their rescuing. And the person is going to be to leeward of me, forward of the beam on the port side because on my boat, my engine kicks to port. My mainsail is going to be pinned in the center. It's going to be at an appropriate reefing level for the wind. Hopefully it was already, although you might have to make that happen if you were a racer with only one reef available and you weren't using it and then someone fell off. And, you know, these are reasons why we reef early. So now we're, now we're moving towards the right position. We have used the engine to drive the boat around and we are now in a position where that person is ahead of you. And our people that were clocking the direction are saying to you things like, well, for me on my boat, because I kicked a port, they are 10 o'clock, 50 meters, 10.30, 35 meters, 11 o'clock, and like, oh, that's getting a bit too far forward. So then I turn the boat a little bit to starboard, and I want to see that person coming towards me. Now, on a boat like mine, I can't really see the dock. When the dock gets closer than about six or seven meters away, I can't see the dock. I have to have good crew who will give me distances to the dock. When this person in the water, from my position, you know, 40 feet back on the boat, and they're not, you know, they're going to be seen over the bow of the boat, 40 feet back on deck, plus the height of my freeboard, I can't see somebody when they're like, I know, like 10 meters away, 15 meters away, I can't see them at all. So people are now calling the distance to me and they're pointing and they are giving me the instructions to what's going on. I'm slowly 
getting the boat into a position. The mainsail is helping to uh, heel the boat over and it's massively stalled out and oversheeted. So it's not really providing that much forward momentum and the engine is helping me to do the maneuvering. Now, what happens if the main, you just keep driving forward, right? You just drive right past the person. The instinct is to ease the main sheet. Because when you ease the mainsheet, you think you're going to spill wind out of the mainsail, but that's not going to work, is it? Because you're going to ease the mainsail to the position it wants to be at so that it can power up the wind angle you're on, which is a beam reach. Beam reach, very fast point of sail. Do not ease the mainsail. It doesn't matter if the tow rail's underwater, um, you've got a bit too much mainsail on, um, you can always turn the boat, orientate the boat up into the wind a little bit more and that will just relieve the healing of the boat if you're really starting to worry about that. But a decent keel boat with a decently sized main for the conditions will do this no problem at all. Now, the other function you have available with your engine is that if you put it in neutral, the mainsail will jog you forwards. If you put it in reverse, it will slow the boat down, probably bring it to a stop, but may just slow you down. And I've done this on 110 foot boats, 68 foot boats, 60 foot boats, and I've done it hundreds of times, okay? It's more difficult in heavy weather conditions, and there is a little bit of panache that's required to, to make that happen, but you need to be in a position where that mainsail, do not ease the mainsail, otherwise you are gonna reach right past this person and you'll probably never see him again or drive over them, God help us. So the mainsail stays pinned in the center, and the engine now, when the engine goes into reverse, and you may have to use quite a lot of reverse, the net result will be that the main's trying to push you forwards, the main is massively stalled out, the wind is on the beam, and the engine is trying to take you backwards. The forwards motion of the end of the main will probably be counteracted by the uh, astern thrust of the engine, and our net result will be that we'll go sideways. So we have a couple of controls. We cannot drive backwards. There will not be enough power or grip in your prop to drive backwards, but you can stop and go sideways, you can drive up into the wind, or you can jog forwards with the mainsail pinned. Do not ease the main sheet. You have to learn how to maneuver that person that's ahead of you. For me, it'd be on the port side, about 9.30 to around 11.30. They're in that quadrant on my port side, and I have to use that series of maneuvers which are available to get the boat into a position where that person is now close within reach. So we have done the first section in the first couple of minutes where we got the boat uh, ready for what's happening. I would say that by the time you've crash tapped the boat, put the life-saving gear out, rolled up the headsail and started the engine, you'll be three minutes, four minutes maybe into this process. You're then gonna drive the boat up until they're pretty much in position. It's gonna take you another three or four minutes. So we're now getting into the last 120 seconds of our 600 second method for getting somebody back on board, right? This is obviously you try as best you can, right? Don't try and learn this like it's, um, and then you do this and then you do that, like you're setting up a you know new peripheral on your computer. There's gonna be a lot of fudge in this, there's gonna be a lot of art in it. Just try and keep calm and just try and stick to the major principles of what's going on, okay? Now, we're going into the last part of it. Now the person is within about 10 meters of the boat. We're getting into crucial moments here. The crucial moment is that this may be a successful recovery of the person in the water. It may be that the boat now injures the person in the water very seriously or kills them. Or it may be that you pass by them, it doesn't work at all, and then they've got like another go that you'll go around again and you know, you'll have done all of the setup bits. You just gotta reposition and go again. That'll either continue until you get them on board safely 
or unfortunately you lose them again in the darkness, you lose them again in the waves, or you just can't get them on board without risking the rest of the crew and the person in the water dies. And the, you know, it all sounds a bit harsh, but that's the reality, right? So we're now in a crucial position. So I'm gonna deal with this as though it's my boat. It's easier for me to visualize. I'm in that Northwestern quadrant of the, between nine and 12, the person's ahead of me. Now I need crucial information. So we said earlier that the amount of information that you're giving as a distance and an angle spotter is all about um, uh, the, uh, the numbers you give, make them bigger if they are getting bigger, make them smaller if they're getting smaller. But once you get down to this like 10 meters, you need to be able to judge 10 meters accurately for docking boats, for picking up personnel off out the water, for meeting up with other boats. You should be able to accurately guess 30 feet, 25 feet, 20 feet, 15 feet, or judge 10 meters, seven meters, five meters. You should be able to look across your living room and go, this is about seven meters long. You should be able to look down your garden and go, that looks like that's 30 feet away and know what that is, okay? So whatever unit you're using, whether it's meters, feet, yards, or whatever you're using, it's now getting down to like the nitty gritty. And the nitty gritty is the fact that the helms person probably can't see the person in the water, okay? Not accurately, not well. How are we gonna get this person onto the boat? This is the final phase. This is the final, we, we set the boat up, we got the boat into position where we could potentially um, bring them on board. We're now gonna get them out of the water. How do we do that? The best method that we have for getting them out of the water is uh, professional, uh, heavy duty, uh, well understood lifting equipment. It'd be the only option, right? If you've got this like 60 to 120 kilo mass in the water, which you're trying to get out, you're gonna need lift. Well, we do have that, we have halyards. To make this work, a couple of things are gonna have to line up. When you size halyards for your boat, when you are cutting the tails in the cockpit, you don't wanna have loads and loads of rope sitting in your, um, in your baskets, uh, in, in your lot, <laughs> I can't even say it, getting so excited, in your uh, cockpit bags, you don't wanna have loads of extra lines sitting in there. So you'll often cut the halyards off. How do you know how much to cut them off? I'll give you it, it's nice and easy. The halyard should be able to be at the surface of the water with three wraps around the winch at least and into the self-tailor and have three feet beyond the winch. That is how long your halyards are meant to be. And the reason that they go to the water is because it will allow you to drop tenders into the water if you use halyards for that, to lift things on and off the dock with your halyards if you're putting sails onto the dock and to help get man overboard out of the water and there needs to be enough that it will you've got your wraps on your winch you can run the winch and you need three turns to be able to run a winch convincingly and enough out the back that someone can tail it for you if you're cutting them off so that literally you know your spinnaker halyard drops to the deck and like the knot is up against the jammer it's too short you can get some um uh, thinner line like you know uh, go down a couple mil and then splice it in and put a bit on or replace the halyard but if you end up uh, in a situation where the halyards are too short, you're gonna have to start improvising extensions and doing all this sort of stuff. It's gonna get unsafe, more unsafe than it already is. The halyards need to be able to reach the water. All of the people who are involved in this rescue need to be clipped onto the boat, for sure, onto that, uh, that jack stay on that side, or if possible, clipped to the center jack stay or the high jack stay so that they themselves can't become victims of what's going on. Halyards wise, you're gonna be looking to drop something, let's just leave it as that right now, into the water and attaching it somehow to this person and getting that person back out and onto the deck. If the person is conscious in the water and you can get the halyard to them, just give them the halyard. 
okay? It's it's not a, an issue. Just give it to them and get them to clip it onto the front of their life jacket and then start grinding like Billy O and they come onto the boat. Fantastic job done. Everybody breathe a huge sigh of relief. The skipper can go and empty his or her pants and then we all get back on with our day being cautious about the things that can come thereafter in terms of secondary drowning. If the person is too far away from the boat, then we're going to have to do a couple of things. The boat's got to get closer or we're going to have to like get that person closer. Let's talk about that for a second. If you do life-saving, I did my Australian surf life-saving qualifications years ago now, and I've always got my bronze medallion and stuff. Let me remember that it's uh, reach, throw, row, go. That's how it goes. So you try and reach out to the person from a secure and secured place, like someone's holding onto you and you're clipped on and you're on the deck of the boat and you reach out. If that doesn't work, you can use something longer to reach for them, like a, a boat hook or something. If that doesn't work, you throw them something, throw them a line that you can then pull them to you. Now in a life-saving situation, the next one is row. For us, uh, we don't really have a row option, although you know the life raft could be involved, the tender could be involved. Obviously on a big ship, they have fast rescue craft that go. The row is maybe not really an option for us. Row perhaps is get the boat closer. If the person is coming down nicely in that quadrant, that for me would be between like nine and 12 o'clock, between 9.30 and 11 o'clock, coming closer and closer to the boat. We just wait, the boat will get closer, the boat will get closer, then we can make our move and we can reach out to them. There are some boats, race boats, um, which would which would say at this point that we have a swimmer on board. Now, swimmers, if you're in the Navy, and you're going to be like a professional swimmer off a helicopter, you are highly trained. If you're going to be a swimmer that goes off the side of a naval vessel or a lifeguard cutter or something like that, you are highly trained. What does highly trained look like? It means you are specifically trained in the actions of going into the water and rescuing somebody and that your fitness level was testable and, uh, and, a, and a known figure moments before you entered the water and you are completely kitted up and ready to do the task with information and with uh, uh, items that you're working with, piece of equipment that the whole arrest the crew knows. A swimmer is not like the youngest member of the crew who says he can swim, who is now going into the water in a life jacket with the with the bobbin taken off it so it doesn't automatically inflate, who's gonna go and get somebody with a rope tied around them. Like I'm sure there's success stories of this, but in terms of having a morally acceptable evolution, which you can sit in court and talk to somebody about later on, that's not gonna cover it. So I would say for now, let's just keep a swimmer out of this package, but we could have somebody in a harness and the harness is a crucial piece of information, a crucial, crucial piece of equipment. That person in the harness is going to be attached into the halyard. They're going to be tied with a bowline, not using the not using the snap shackle. They're going to be bowlined using the halyard into the 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 the, the boat's uh, normal halyard system with a winch on it. Maybe they've got two halyards on if you've got that set up and ready to go. They're going over the side of the boat and they are going to go down to the water's edge, not like any further, with their feet like down you know on the side of the hull, dipping into the water but not swimming alongside the boat. And they are going to reach out for the person. And what are they going to reach out with? They're going to need to have with them another halyard or a short strop which connects their halyard to the other person. It cannot connect between their harness and the other person's life jacket so that when they get pulled out, their harness is taking the weight of two people because harnesses are not designed for that. It needs to be a short strop that goes from the bowline, which is attaching the halyard to their harness, 
and goes across to the other person. It could be that it's just a piece of line on deck that's made up for that, that you keep in your life-saving gear. It could be that there's another halyard, completely separate halyard, which they've got hold on, hold, they are holding on to or they've passed to them, and they're going to connect that to the other person. Okay, And then the two, both the rescuer and the victim, are then hoisted out uh, onto the deck of the boat. This can be very much assisted by the skipper at that point using the engine to turn the bow of the boat into the wind, at which point the boat will stand up and be a lot flatter. If the person that's in the water is not responsive, you've, you've got a serious problem because trying to get somebody who is not responsive to, um, to do anything is now impossible, but also trying to maneuver their body is a lot more difficult. When you have a life jacket and it's got those, um, those leg loops, the function of the leg loops is to hold the life jacket on you if you are completely unconscious and being dragged out of the water by the lifting loop on your life jacket. It stops your unconscious form from just going limp, your arms going above your head, and then the life jacket sliding up and off and over the, uh, over the top of you and being lost from you. That's why the leg loops are so important. If the person, if you can get to the person and get a halyard connected onto them, all well and good. If they are completely unresponsive and they don't, or they don't have a, um, a life jacket on, you may have to have some kind of lifting arrangement which you're gonna use. Uh, I'm gonna steer clear of now discussing all the various things which are available for getting people back onto the boat. There are pieces of equipment which help with this. We could discuss those at another date, but I don't wanna muddy the waters. This is a normal everyday thing uh, for that has happened uh, in, in, in that, no, it's not normal in everyday. The circumstances are, we don't have loads of extra equipment. You haven't done loads and loads and reams and reams of testing. You haven't got hundreds of dollars of extra uh, life-saving equipment on board the boat. You've just got you guys, the halyards, the harness, which the guy uses to go up the mast once in a while when it needs to be checked by the, the mastman or by the foredeck people. Um, that piece of equipment allows you to get over the side of the boat and allows you to drag that person closer to the boat. Now, I will say this. Boat hooks extend six feet, okay? not very very helpful they're, when they're small they're small enough to be put away somewhere and when they're extended you know if you pull too hard on them you can kind of pull the end off them and uh, they don't reach very far i have on board all my boats a very long painters extension the ones which are for high ceilings you can get these they when they're all shooked back together they're about six foot or seven foot long which you can always find somewhere to, to put that when they're extended they're like between 21 and 28 foot long. They are, things are ridiculous. They're aluminum. They have got all the same kind of functionality as a normal boat hook. And they have the little uh, twisty thread on the end, which is intended to go into the end of your paint roller. But you can buy on Amazon or from West Marine or from all retail stores, a screw on boat hook end, which screws right onto those suckers. And I'd say, get a drill, drill it through and put a uh, nut and, stainless steel nut and bolt through it with a uh, nylock nut so it can't come undone. Now you have a 21 foot boat hook. This is key. You have to be able to reach a long way out from the boat. The likelihood that you've got enough skill to just keep calm, do all this stuff, drive the boat super close to the person and get them within reaching distance from the deck or reaching distance for a, a, a rescuer who's hanging over the side of the boat in a, a harness. The chance of doing that, well, I'll tell you right now, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't just park the boat three foot off a dock every time. I can get close pretty regularly, but quite often I, I, I can't reach the, the, the dock. I have to go again or throw a line or do whatever. That may not be an option, but having this thing which you can extend out and reach a very long way is absolutely key. 
If you haven't used it already, this is also the time that your throw line should be in use and you should be skilled in using your throw line for throwing it distances. Learn how to throw it so that it will go straight, that you can make all of the line lie flat. That's your, oh my God, oh my God, I hope this helps kind of save all thing for getting yourself uh, uh, you know, onto a dock or something, that you can throw your line so it goes flat on that you can and that you can accurately throw at 30 foot and you can try that in the garden you can take it to the park you can do it at the dock at the marina but then you'll have a load of yachties telling you how to do this that and the other learn how your throw line works i like the ones which are kind of like a um, nylon bag with uh, orange nylon rope inside and then it's got a heavy uh, like a heavy-ish weight at the end of it. i think it's actually a lump of cork at the end of it so even if you throw it and miss you can just pick up the bag with water in it and throw it again and it will go again i've used those to save myself in docking maneuvers loads of times so you have to be able to reach with a big long boat hook with good length on it not those stupid little six foot things they're ridiculous and you think like traditional boat hooks back in the day they were like 10 foot long with those brass hooks on the end of them and the wooden boat hook. I had those in the Navy. They were massively long. They were clipped onto the side of the, the outer combing of the, um, the, 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 the superstructure on the Navy ships. They were long, really long, right? And now we've got these little like pokey aluminum things like that's going to do. So get a long um, painter's one. They're like 20 foot long. You can clip it up uh, in the forward cabin, like bungee it alongside the handrails up there or get it behind the seats in the cushion or stick it in the back bunk or whatever. Just have it on board. So when it comes to that point where you've got your man overboard within 10 foot of the boat, and it looks like you're going to drift on by each other, suddenly, boom, boom, out comes this 20-foot-long thing. That person comes close or throw a rope from them. In terms of lifting them out of the water, you cannot put two people's weight onto the um, harness, but you can put two people's weight on a halyard. You need to, if possible, have two halyards in, in go so you can't make a mistake. And if you're using snap shackles, it must be fully closed. I can think of one death off the top of my head, unfortunately, maybe we'll go through it another time when we're reviewing MAIB reports, and an element within the circumstances which developed, which led to this person unfortunately dying, was that an initial pass to collect the person from the water, uh, a, a connection was made, a halyard was connected on, but then the snap shackle came open. It's so easy to do. I've had it happen thousands of times. It's just unfortunate. For the, for the rescuer on that occasion, it didn't work out. But if you can think about it in the moment, it must be clipped completely closed. It might be the only time that you get to clip onto them. So get your snap shackle, your halyard, your carabiner, or whatever it is, attached to the person in the water, and then those on deck hoist the person up and onto the boat. There are other details we can go into with all of this. You'll appreciate that there's a lot that can happen that really packs this out be very aware of secondary drowning the person's been in the water but it's very likely that they've ingested the flora and fauna that lives in the seawater which means that their lungs are then going to be massively irritated by that that's secondary drowning pulmonary edema water in the lungs is no joke and can lead to serious issues later on um, they need to be got to uh, proper medical care which if it's the quickest option is for you to turn around and take them do that if not Move them to a bigger vessel, which will be a case of calling a big ship to you. They will send their fast rescue craft, transfer the person to the fast rescue craft. They'll then be lifted onto the ship. And although on board that ship, they do not have like a hospital there, at least it's stable and it's flat and they can kind of 
get a register on what's going a lot better to provide medical care. If you've got a good first aid kit, like a an MCA uh, offshore f- first aid kit, and you've got that on the boat, you've got pretty much what a big ship's got, apart from the actual amount of stuff that they have available. But you don't have a flat, simple scenario a cabin bed a tap a sink you know the ability to boil a kettle of water easily that's why you would transfer someone to a vessel because of just the flatness of the uh of the of the ship but um they need to get whether and obviously a helicopter can come to a ship a lot easier than it come to you um or if you're really worried about them then obviously highline transfer to a helicopter so let's go through as we approach uh an hour and 50 here. I, I hope that you are continuing to listen on this one. This is not bad. It's an hour and 20. We talked about Patreon stuff at the beginning for half an hour. Let's just review quickly here if you can stand it. The person goes over the side. You're going to windward. I would come back and discuss spinnakers in a second. Um, you're going to windward or you beat, uh, you're, you're reaching. The helms person is alerted to what's going on. And whether they are the captain or not, the helms person starts to bring the boat up in a a gentle arcing turn do not dump all of your side deck crew into the water do not have the mainsail then flapping around all over the place because it was on a beam reach and now you're going upwind you bring the boat up into that turn and after about 60 seconds the boat has stopped or is stopping on the opposite tack with the jib backed and the mainsail is rapidly being pinned in the center if it's not already pinned in the center and the boat is fine on the wind the way is being run off by the fact that the, the the jib is slowing the boat down. The person that's driving is holding the boat fine on the wind, like pinching on the wind, until all of that speed is gone. And then they push the helm so that they're trying to turn the boat into the wind. The balance of the mainsail, the rudder, and the jib will bring the boat to a slow stop where it's just crabbing sideways and you can never stop entirely whilst you're hove to. You'll still be doing about a knot, a knot and a half, depending on the boat. Even in a Volvo 60, even in an open 60, I can heave to with almost no uh, lateral resistance underwater at all because my keel is so thin, my rudder blade is so thin, I can still heave to and do 1.5 knots in 30 knots of breeze. So you can on your boat too, whatever it is, just learn how to do it. Whilst that's happening, we are getting things ready down below decks. We are getting the kettle ready, the the the, the sleeping bag ready, the um, the first aid kit ready, whatever's our <clears throat> our plan for this person. And we are on the VHF, starting to send a mayday message. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is yacht X, yacht X, yacht X. Mayday. This is yacht X. We have a man overboard at and then give them the position from the GPS or any relative things and then start giving more information about the boat. We are an orange boat with gray sails. The person is in the water wearing a life jacket with a yellow hood. Um, He is presently 100 meters on the starboard side of our vessel and we have eyes on him. Mayday, this is Yacht X. Okay, that's okay. It doesn't have to like stick exactly to the form, give what information you can. So, that's all going on. Meanwhile, on deck, people or person or whatever it is you've got going on, hopefully a couple of people to back each other up, are pointing and giving a clock face relative position. They're at three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock to this person. Whatever unit you choose to use, whether it's miles, kilometers, boat lengths, meters, yards, whatever comes to you, if the person gets further away, increase the number. If the person gets closer, decrease the number. But by the time they are 10 meters or 30 feet away from you, you should have the skill to be able to accurately say that is five meters, that is 10 feet, that is 17 feet, that is 6.8 meters, whatever, right? You've got to be able to do that, like just for docking. Jesus, you need to know that. So that's all happening. Now that's the end of phase one. 
Fair, oh, you know what? And safety gear going into the water, of course. So when the boat flattens up a little bit, we're not beating, you're not reaching at high speed, crew come back and they deploy the life-saving gear. Let's talk a little bit about spinnakers and what we put in the water. When you have to throw the stuff off the back of the boat, it's probably going to be a horseshoe life buoy with a drogue, with a whistle, with a light, with the name of the vessel written on it. That's standard fare. One of those horseshoe life buoys is going to be connected to a dam buoy, which is a little float with a long six foot pole with a, a yellow and red flag, the Oscar signal flag, man overboard flag, with a weight on the bottom of it, also with a light. And then that means when that goes into the water, it's something nice and tall that's going to help you see the person because seeing somebody's head in the water is very, very difficult when the waves are anything more than like one foot, two foot high. The gear going off the back of the boat, you've got to go slow and you've got to do it carefully. I've That video of Arthur going in the water that I mentioned at the beginning from the Clipper race in 2009 off Holland Humber, all of their safety gear got completely wound together because they daisy-chained the uh, the long lines, the polypropylene floating line. It had then got itself caught round things and it was it just none of it deployed because it was all tied up on the back of the boat. It was a major piece of learning that Hull and Humber were able to bring back to the table afterwards like we have to have a better method of deploying these lines. So you'll often find there's a little reel of polypropylene line or there's a, a bag that it pulls out of or whatever it is, it's got to go out nice and smoothly and everybody's got to know how that happens. And don't just throw it and hope it's okay because you might find it's still connected to the boat. Now, there is another piece of equipment called the life sling. Life slings are super useful. You keep it attached to the back of the boat and it's being dragged along. Be cautious about the fact that you can end up in circumstances while you're trying to maneuver the boat where now it's all around the back of the boat because you backed up or you drifted sideways. Discuss with the skipper. Obviously, whatever happens is the skipper's point of view. If he says, sling it off the back, sling it off the back. If she says, no, hold on to it, deploy it at this moment, do what that person says. But this thing is going to be attached to the back of the boat. It's like a foam sling. Now, on the instructions for the life sling, it says that you should drive in a circle around the person. I have been reliably informed by people who regularly do water skiing that this is not the way to do it. You must drive past the person and then turn diagonally so that you um, pass the rope over the top of the person. You approach them, then you turn diagonally and kind of go around them and put a little wiggle in your course and they will they will get the rope close by them. If you just keep circling, the, the foam float or the, the ski toe will just keep circling with you. You've got to bring it right to them. Now, what do you do if you've got a spinnaker up? If you've got a spinnaker up, there is no way that you can get it down any quicker than the way that you get it down when you get it down, okay? <laughs> that sounds a bit odd. Don't do new things in difficult circumstances. There is a feeling amongst sailors, although I've never seen it deployed successfully ever, that you can suddenly like let go the halyard on the spinnaker and it's going to like deploy, you know, it's just going to deflate and depressurize and like be gone from your world. You're going to just flick off the halyard, flick off the sheets. It's all going to coil completely on cue and the spinnaker will just no longer be part of what's going on on the boat. This idea was brought about by a uh, America's Cup a racing strategy where they were dumping their kites off the top of these uh, very tall rigs during races in their pickup boats picking it up. They had a hook release at the top which they were pinging or it was being spiked by a marsman that was up there and the sheets were set up specially to do it. It won't work on your boat. If you start trying to get rid of the spinnaker by easing the halyard really quickly and trying to like dump it in the water and stuff, you're just going to end up with the same amount of problems 
but now it's 30 feet away from the boat and totally out of control. Now it's dragging in the water. Now it's all around the boat. Now you can't use the propeller. You have to bring the kite down in the exact same way that you normally would do. I remember doing a sail. Uh, it was a safety at sea course. And I did it with the crew of the Super Maxi Alfa Romeo, a boat which you know could regularly hit 25 knots going off the wind. And to get their kite down, somebody would have to go up the rig and spike it. So part of their man overboard assessment was how far will the boat travel away from the person in the water if we're on a blasting reach and we have to suddenly put somebody up the mast and let go of the kite to spike it and get rid of it in the normal fashion and they worked out that they'd be at best a mile and a half to two miles away from the person it's a major consideration for what's going on so if you're with a spinnaker the only way of getting it down is the best way that you know how to get it down but that means you're going to be a long way further away from the person in the water than you might otherwise be there are a couple of low-tech things you can do. The best of those that you can do is that the, the helm will be trying to slow the boat down as much as possible, and that means they're gonna have to drive dead downwind. Okay, don't crash the mainsail. Everyone's gonna be all over the place anyway, trying to work out what's going on. It's gonna be a very scary emotional situation, um, but go as deep as you possibly can, and then you know that your victim in the water is directly or nearly directly upwind from you start throwing things off the back yeah that's going to leave like a breadcrumb trail in the water could be fleeces caps sunglasses water bottles cushions anything that will go in the water it doesn't matter what it is now this is life and death get the cushions in there get fenders in there get whatever it is if it's something which is light and has no hydraulic lock it will blow downwind but it is still on the same path that you need to travel up to get back to your person you had the kite you went dead downwind you've maybe had to go a mile to get the kite down when you turn around all of that stuff you dropped will either be hydraulically locked on the path directly upwind to the person or they will have blown a bit downwind along the path dead downwind back to the person okay so you're going to have to be very cautious with this and you're going to have to make sure you don't crash the mainsail um, if you cannot do that then and you have to kind of keep a bit more uh, of an angle you can't go dead downwind for whatever reason you're a bit nervous about that just be aware that the stuff that you throw in the water which is um uh not got hydraulic lock like a fender like a, a cushion maybe if it's not waterlogged it's got a plastic wrap on it then it's uh, they're going to be slightly downwind from the the path that you want to take but fleeces are very good they don't sink very easily you can spot them in the water quite well you know, the thing that I have on board uh, Challenger, you can buy from Energizer these little red torches with uh, retroflective tape at the top. They take two AA batteries into their little red handle. And then uh, when you turn them on, they are completely waterproof and they float with their red handle down and with the light upwards and the little retroflective tape on them. They are brilliant at night. And we have three of those in a little pouch just inside the companionway. They are good in an emergency if you need a torch in the cockpit, but they are always kept charged. They are always kept in that position and they are there specifically. So if we have to turn downwind and we have to like drive away from somebody, we'll have the safety gear that we threw in. So now in go two, um, two horseshoe life boys, in goes the damn boy, and then in go three torches over, you know, every, every 20 seconds, a new torch is going in and then we'll be able to follow our way back up, uh, back up, back up wind to the person. So, uh, the other thing we should mention now is is AIS 
uh, beacon which you can put on your life jacket. Technology has come along now that allows us to have an AIS beacon in our pockets, in our life jackets, on board our person, um, which can help you. Obviously, there are also personal EPUBs, but they are not so useful because that signal cannot be re re cannot be retrieved on the boat. It cannot be used on board the boat. You can't see the satellite signal. Um, it gives a higher level uh, kind of search parameter, maybe for vessels that are coming in to help you, or if a lot of time's gone past and you really have just lost the person, you can get information then sent to you by a JIS. Uh, by a joint services um, rescue center, um, but it's uh, it's in, it's important that that those AIS beacons go in your life jacket. Now they're expensive, yeah, and certainly for me, I have to buy like eighteen of these things to be able to fit into the life jackets on board the boat. It doesn't matter; you just have to find the money. They're about two hundred US bucks, I think, at the moment. Um, get get a good branded one. Have a look around for um, for for a, a manufacturer. Look at reviews. I'm not going to say which one to get or not, but it should be in your life jacket. Everyone should know how it works, and it should be on the way that it deploys. When the life jacket inflates, it goes off, and then that signal can be received right on board the boat. Either you've got a VHF unit that shows AIS, which is very easy to purchase, not too expensive, or your chart plotter is showing it. But you have to be able to find that person in the water, you have to use technology. I will also mention the fact that there are bracelets that you can get, which um, if you get more than 30 feet away from the boat, basically a Bluetooth connection is lost and you'll then know that somebody has gone over the side of the boat. Um, I'm a little unsure with those. Raymarine does use them. It's, it's a very good system. The only thing I'd say is that you don't want to be on anything which is too... Um, you want to be using ones which are specifically designed for the marine industry and don't be getting into ones which are like um, based on your phone uh, setting off an alarm uh, because this thing has gone away from you and you really need to understand that system. I know there are a few on the market which are a bit more based on um, um, phone-based technology. I think we want something which is attached to the boat, powered up by 12 volts, constantly active. It's a known piece of equipment and it's not like based on is Charlie's phone turned on or not? Because that could be a bit worrying. But those are to detect if people have like fallen off the boat. Um, eyes and ears is always the best one for that. Um, what else can we get into here? So, uh, and then we get, well, we're finishing our recap, weren't we? So we the person's gone in the water. We then have to get the boat back to a position. We need to minimize freeboard. We need to minimize pitching, minimize rolling. And we do that by bringing the boat to a position upwind of the casualty and then using the force that the, the penned mainsail can create. Hopefully it's at a size that's not too much for the conditions. It shouldn't be if you're sailing relatively sensibly, not racing. Um, it's pinned in the center. The helms person or the, the captain, whoever it is, has got control of the engine. The engine has started. The engine has uh, been checked to make sure it's got fuel, that it's able to run. There's no rope in the water, anything like that. And our rescuers are standing on what's going to be our leeward side, and that will be decided whichever way your prop kicks. And they are secured to the boat, that they have halyards that will reach the water. Potentially, we might have somebody in a harness who's going to go over the side of the boat and... Um, and, uh, and get into the water but not swimming away from the boat unless they are an absolute professional, highly trained. I don't think it's going to happen for many of us. And then we're going to try and maneuver the boat into position using the fact that it will jog forward with this pinned mainsail and that we can stop it but not go backwards with the engine. And when we do do that, the boat will go sideways. So you've got like forwards, 
You've got slightly up to windward if you point the helm up. You do not have the opportunity to turn downwind with it. You do not have the opportunity to ease the mainsail uh, sheet. That'd be a very bad idea. But you do have the option to drift sideways if you engage the engine astern. And um, and, and you have to practice this stuff. I will say that's, I guess, as we come into the final straights of this, you've got to practice this. Um, practicing with, say, a load of rope all tied together very tightly and with a fender on it is good, but obviously you can lose it if you lose sight of everything. Um, if you have backstays, be very careful that your mainsail is not crossing across and then bending itself around your backstays. It's good to learn the fact that you need to release your backstays if you have them because that will really um, create a massive problem with the main and, and healing the boat over if your backstays still on. But if you are practicing this, be very aware of the fact that um, your car, if you've got a fully battened mainsail, it'll be wrapping itself around the backstays as it happens on my boats and then you can end up with uh, cracked battens. But you still have to practice. You've got to fight easy which means you've got to train hard right this cannot be something that you're making up on the spot so i'm not going to take it any further because we're into two hours here which is always like an upper limit for these these days but i hope yeah we had half an hour at the beginning of, of lighter stuff but there's about an hour and a half here of a very serious uh like look into how to get somebody back on board the boat i hope that this will open up some discussion i have not talked about really how to get the person back on board if you are sailing because i want to put the idea that it's with the engine uppermost in your head um I would say that some of the best man overboard training I ever got in my life is when I went to uh, work for Clipper. I was a, a training mate, training skipper, and then race skipper with Clipper. Went around the world in 09010. Is that no, not 010, <laughs> 0910. And um, they're just repeating that all the time, all the time, all the time. We're practicing with every group multiple, multiple times until I have a feeling now that I have a pretty good idea what I'm going to do. And I have a pretty good idea of what jobs need to be going on on board the boat. And I think as the skipper, I can carry myself in a relatively calm fashion, which I know is going to really help this being a successful evolution. I would urge you to get yourself into the same, practice it, have fun with it to begin with because it is meant to be fun, take it seriously. The skills that you learn will make you better crew on deck, it'll make docking the boat easier, get everybody on the helm, it's just in the middle of nowhere, let everybody have a go. You might find that somebody that you don't realize is a dab and at doing this and really get it working. Lose the ego and go for maximum possibilities. As the skipper of a boat, when I have 16 crew on board, I will not be driving the boat. Where will I be standing when this happens? Well, I think I've mentioned that before. When we did these problem-solving exercises in the Navy, we had uh, the commanding officer that was running the exercise and he would always be saying, can you see me? Can you see me? Can you see me? And we'd be saying, yes, sir, we can see you, we can see you. And his point afterwards was, you could all see me because I could see all of you. Standing at the back as the skipper is the one that's coordinating this life and death evolution, you should not have hands on the wheel. If you're in a situation where you're the only one who has got enough skill to bring the boat to the person, that you can't even delegate having hands on the throttle and having hands on the wheel to other people, then you're not running your boat right because you should have it that you bring people up. You share knowledge as fast as possible. If your position of command is so shaky that it has to be your hand on the wheel or it's all going wrong, you need to kind of question your choices there. It is a very, very educational thing to like dock a boat where you are calling the commands. Okay, you know, one third ahead, neutral, one third astern, two thirds astern, neutral, wheel five degrees to port, center the wheel, five degrees to starboard, center the wheel. You can give all that, which is exactly what you do in the Navy. It's exactly what you do when you're doing your yacht master um, 
um, uh, if you're doing your Yachtmaster uh, theory, um, you'll learn about you know what you're meant to do to dock a boat and where the engine's going to be and where the prop's going to be. When you go and practice it yourself, you'll have your hand on the wheel, but quite likely when it comes time to do it with a uh, for your examination, your practical examination, uh, the way of getting the best out of the experience is to is to call it is to put somebody else on the wheel and make sure you're in the position where you can see everything that's happening and you can get a good overview of what's happening take proper control of what's going on the leader who leads from the rear ends up taking it in the rear right you've got to be where everyone can see you where you can project strength security and and a, and a calm uh, disposition to your crew so they can hold on to that emotionally while they get involved in this very new very difficult circumstance which this man overboard has created so a little a few tips there for the would-be professional skippers this is a time when people get to see if you really deserve the title captain or even pro um, okay so I'm gonna bring that to a bit of a close I think I've covered all the things that I said I'd come back on technology AIS uh, downwind all that kind of stuff uh, spinnakers um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. What's the method that you use for getting people uh, back onto the boat or you would use? Do you have experience of losing people in the water? I would love to hear of it, even if it's a, a story, unfortunately, with a, a, a sad ending, because only by sharing these things, by talking to each other, by sharing what we've done right, by sharing what we've done wrong, can we really learn? Don't send me your opinions if you have never done this. Opinions are like... Well, you fill in the blanks, but <laughs> a particular kind of hole. Everyone's got one. Um, the point is, uh, if you've got experience of this and how to do it, and you've practiced this, let's say, over 50 times, then you can join the conversation. If you've got lots of theories about how it goes along, maybe try this method. Start talking, start learning, start researching. Try it for yourself. Try it 20 times. See what's best for you. Um, I'm happy to go back and go over the what to do if you're sailing, but I can give it you in a couple of uh, blows. You reach away from the person in the water until you've got yourself worked out enough. You then turn and reach back towards them, taking a position slightly to leeward of them. You then turn into the wind and shoot up in irons and hope to God that the boat stops somewhere alongside them and that you're able to get them back on board. And I'll tell you right now, I have never ever successfully done it and you know why I know that because every time a cap goes over the side of the boat I always try and go back and get it as a man overboard opportunity but I don't get into the full hey we're going to put over people over the side and we do that when we're training for man overboard but for the caps in the water which we regularly lose I always try and do a sailing you know okay we go we do a jibe or attack whatever it is we come back I have never yet once got that cap within any closer than six or eight foot to the boat what would be a massive reach with a standard boat hook the only reason we ever get them back is we've got a 20-foot boat hook so um, be cautious if that's all that you've got available it doesn't work properly okay it's just what we had to do before we had engines now we have engines use the tools available God, that sounds like a very serious podcast. <laughs> yes, well, you know what? It is serious. Jeepers, you know, we all want to be out there. But it's like, if you can't pick up a man overboard, it's like being a kayaker and not knowing how to roll the boat. Being a kayaker and not knowing how to roll is very different from being a kayaker who's got a very steady roll because you're always worried about tipping over in the boat. Once you know how to roll a boat, it's just not an issue at all. It's kind of a giggle to tip over and come straight back up. If you don't know how to get somebody out of the water, if this is probably alloyed to not knowing how to pick up a buoy properly. It's probably alloyed with not knowing how to get the boat alongside the dock properly. 
all of these things are all part and parcel of the same thing of boat maneuvering and boat awareness and it's for every member of the crew to have a, a good understanding of what might have to happen in the event that someone goes into the water um i i'm I will say this also, it's good to know that your crew can do this because if you're in the water, it reduces your stress levels. Uh, we haven't talked too much about what to do if you're the one in the water, but um, stay bundled up, keep your spray shield over your face, keep your back to the waves and keep positive. That's what the whistle's for. It's for morale building tunes. And the little light is for reading in case it gets dark, I'm told. Radio. Okay, well, I shall uh, wrap it up there. I say a little bit uh, serious towards the end of that one. I think it's a little bit easier to do it uh, face-to-face. We obviously have some people that are going to come and do it face-to-face with me. Just to repeat, that is Dean Futi, who run the uh, Skipper Level uh, competition on Patreon and is now going to be coming and hopefully joining us for one of our five-day events, two days of training. We'll be seeing you very Sean Dean. We've also got Ramesh and Len. Len on Lantau and Ramesh, they're going to be coming and joining us for Transatlantic. Thank you to everybody who is on uh, Patreon. Um, go over and have a look at that if you haven't uh, already. Patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, all one word. And uh, that's going to be getting a good overhaul and a good look-see in the next uh, couple of days. We've got this video editing company that's going to come. And finally, give me the tools I need to be able to give you the seamanship that you uh, training that you deserve. And uh, we'll get going with that again. But I'll start getting more content on there, some behind-the-scenes stuff and little daily um, uh, hellos from uh, from whatever I'm doing if something interesting is happening. But um, yeah, the, everything that you do on there, the support that you give on there is is massively uh, beneficial uh, to what's happening with the podcast. And I, and I really appreciate the 35 people that have already taken the leap and, and jumped in there. So send me your uh, thoughts and your opinions and your... Uh, no, don't send me your opinions. <laughs> send me real-world knowledge you have about Man Overboard, things you've learned from the military, from the merchant, from your experiences on the water. And uh, let's make sure that um, at least for listening for an hour and a half, people have the tools to be able to help somebody if you should get into that terrible circumstance of them falling off the boat. So that's enough for this episode. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.